celebrate the Black Friday sales event at Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair. Step into a new Jeep that you can count on. From the awarded new Grand Cherokee to the capable 2022 Jeep Compass, the Jeep lineup won't compromise on power, technology, or comfort. Delivering confidence and convenience for 29 years. Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair is your trusted auto partner. Visit us off Highway 30 in Blair or online at WoodhouseChryslerJeepDodge.com. It's that time of year, everybody. It is that time of year to get with your families, with your in-laws, and have that wonderful dinner, Thanksgiving dinner. No politics, no religion, no arguing ever, right? Just kidding. I just want to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving, and we brought a very special episode to you this year for Thanksgiving. Kyle Morgan, he's a former Delta boy, Delta Force operator. Kyle has done one of the most heroic acts that I have ever had the pleasure, not the pleasure, the honor to listen to on the Sean Ryan Show. He saved a lot of people by entering a hotel by himself who was being shot up by bad guys. Ladies and gentlemen, this show started out showing you the tough transitions that war fighters do going from fighting wars into the civilian population. And Kyle, at the time of recording this, had only been out for 44 days. You're gonna see exactly what it looks like when a warfighter comes home from war and tries to reintegrate into civilian life. You're gonna see that he can't hold a single thought. He can't wrap his head around a single subject. And you're gonna see him relive events. It's gonna be all over his face, especially when we get to the hotel, the trauma that that caused. Ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome Kyle Morgan to the Sean Ryan Show. Kyle Morgan, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, Sean, thanks for having me. My pleasure. We've been going back and forth for what, like six months now? Yeah. And finally got you in here. Yeah. Had a couple of good conversations, but so brief introduction, 20 years in Army, most of which is special operations work, almost all combat time. Your service is incredible. Some of your awards, Distinguished Service Cross for Extraordinary Heroism, five Bronze Star Medals, one with Valor, U.S. Department of State Bureau of Diplomatic Security Certificate of Heroism, Military Freefall with Bronze Star Combat, three Presidential unit citations, two meritorious unit citations, Defense Meritorious Service Medal, Meritorious Service Medal, six Army Good Conduct Medals, and the list goes on. That's a hell of a career, man. But um, so we're going to cover your whole life story, starting with childhood. But first, we always start with a gift. <laughs> Any guesses? What's in the box, man? Uh, I hope it's donuts. Donuts? Damn. There better, I Close. hope there better be donuts in your shelves. Um, no, thank you very much. 
The guess would be, yeah, donuts and maybe, um, I don't know, some gummy bears? I don't know. <laughs> Finally, somebody watches the show that's yeah. on here. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. It's like nobody ever guesses that. <laughs> no one that. knows. I'm not really good at just op open. the opening Just piece. rip it open. Hell yeah. There you go. Dude, better than donuts, made, man. Made right here in the USA. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, thank that. you for the flag. Yeah. That's going to look good and framed no, thanks, up. Yeah, thanks for um, letting me, uh, like, give it to you and then uh, sign it. And it means a lot to me. That, so that flag is the, it's the Blue Bearing Solutions is the company I started. And, you know, being proactive uh, with my retirement and transition. And um, that flag is, uh, it, I jumped it. Um, for the first time of, I haven't jumped in two years since I had my neck fused and, you know, I'm going to retire here with you. Um, so I jumped it, signed it and, um, now it's yours. Well, it'll be framed up hanging in the studio proudly, yeah. but, um, man, I'm just, I'm real excited for this interview. You know, you, so you have started your training company, Blue Bearing Solutions. Mm -hmm. You're 44 days out of the military. I believe that makes you the most relevant man in the training space, whether you'd like to hear that or not, you're the most current. And um, I know you're really, you have a heart of gold and you wanna help with this active shooter shit that's been going on. And um, we just had another one last night in Memphis, all over the city. And so let's start off talking about that. You know, you think there's a solution to this, and it's, it is happening more and more and more. Some people want to take the guns away. They think that's the solution. Some people think arming teachers is a solution. What do you, what's Kyle's solution? I think empowering people and, and not just to bear arms. Like, it's a, a gun is a tool. Um, and it can be used for, for good to defend and to protect. And it can also be used for uh, these atrocities that have been happening since Columbine, since 1999, where our children are being taken from us. And they are, by definition, innocent, in a sense. They, they cannot protect themselves, nor should they have to in that sense. Like, we need to create an environment that we, we as an American society, like have have had and and the fact is is it's a societal change that needs to happen like yeah. taking ownership of the fact that it isn't how it used to be and thank god this isn't a, an organized like terrorist group that's been conducting these attacks because we wouldn't be ready for it as a society like we're not even ready for it and there and it the biggest thing that that we can do it, it's not a solution it's it's a it's a societal change. It's a it's impacting our youth and then developing and protecting them to become contributing members of our society and then their kids. Like what we can do right now is, and what I can do and what I'm doing is showing people that you can make a difference. One person can make all the difference in 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 taking action, absorbing one fraction of that attacker's bandwidth 
to focusing on you while, and the sooner that you can do that and then never the pursuit of that. And then once that happens, you hold on to it. Like imagine and put yourself into the, the, the children's feet and eyes. Like you take that from them. Yeah. If you are a protector, because a lot of people think that they're protectors and they're just providers. Um, to truly protect is, is to do both, like provide and to protect and, and to use overwhelming force if you need to. And I don't want to create and look for fights and that's not the life I'm living anymore. But I also know that I will step and take that from any, anyone's child. And I will put that burden onto me. And I know that I will continue to pursue and never letting go of that. Cause all it takes is, is now they're focusing a fraction of their bandwidth on you mm-hmm. and Oh shit. Where, where, where did, where are they at? Where'd they come from? What are they doing? Are they going to, what are they going to do for one? They may, they may just off themselves right away. Um, and the, the statistics are there. Like if you look at like the, the incidents that have happened and then the, as the, the results of them and, through who who, inter- who intervened and then how long it had was it going, reducing the amount of time for them to go un, unadulterated, like they have the upper hand. But with building your confidence in that you can do something, and if that something is just getting between good and evil, like you'll be able to rest at night. Yeah. And if you're, and if the tomorrow problem is that you're in jail for acting, well, then that's a, that's a bigger societal issue we have, isn't it? But I'll be in jail or, or dead in heaven, you know, and I'll, those are tomorrow problems. Yeah. But right then it's just empathy. It's compassion. So um, you think for it's, others, you think that the, the solution to this is, is, Basically, a cultural change. It's a massive. Everybody cultural needs change. to adopt this. Taking mindset. ownership of it, the fact that we can't just ignore this. Ignorance is not bliss. And how many more of these have to happen before we? Because we are powerful. We mm-hmm. as a collective can make, and we have. You look at our society. Like we have done some amazing things as a, as the American culture and and like it's. I'm I'm so proud to be an American and it's not it's not that it's gone. It just it needs to be stoked. There's one thing we have in common, it's that we've both led very dangerous careers. And there's one thing you're worried about when you have a dangerous career back home, and that's your family. So if you don't mind, I'm just gonna take a quick second to tell the audience about fabric. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. It takes less than 10 minutes to apply, see your quote, and then personalize your quote to fit your family needs. You could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. Life insurance can have a bad rap for being complicated, but Fabric makes it easy to apply with its seamless digital experience. It's all online and on your time. And if you need extra support, Fabric's team of licensed insurance agents can help answer any questions you have along the way. 
Protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Apply today in just 10 minutes at meetfabric.com slash Sean. That's meetfabric.com slash Sean. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash Sean. Policy issued by Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, let's get back to it. One one of the things that I see in today's culture is everybody everybody's just looking for somebody to blame. They they nobody actually wants to take responsibility, and nobody actually from the school boards to the parents to the politicians to the people. Yeah. You know what I see a lot of answers are is instead of the parents actually learning maybe some things that they could adopt to improve their you know, kids' chances of survival if that was to happen. Like, I, I did a video that was like five things that you mm-hmm. could do, you know, if there was an active shooter. And, <clears throat> but what I see the parents doing is they want to they wanna hire a security guard. They, want, they are yeah, legitimately they, yeah. willing to bet their kid's life on somebody that they're going to pay $13 an hour for. Yeah. And that's their solution. There's they think of, that somebody that's being paid $13 an hour is going to jump in front of the bullet that's heading right for their kid's face. Mm. And that's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, because, and, and I, I think that the people are just too busy or they, they think that the, their priorities aren't there. That's, it's, well, this is somebody else's job to teach my kid this stuff. This is somebody else's job to protect. That's your fucking job. No, it's, That's your fucking kid. Your safety and your and, security and, and, and of what you care about and who you care about is, is on you. Yeah. And, like, there's all kinds of, like, people want to throw tools or resources or a bill, a policy, uh, like, a, They'll take the guns, give them guns. Like, to me, it's like, let's strip all of that away and just focus on the fact that, like, get back to center of of what it is to be a protector. Like, truly, in your household. And and then if you you think about how powerful that is to make a change, like an impact change, it's like a ripple effect. Like, if you do that in your house and then that spreads you know, over time and mm-hmm. your spheres of influence. And then I'm, I'm doing it. And then we're building a, a league of protectors, right? And then we're changing the way that we think as a, a cultural shift. Uh, like it's not necessarily, it's, it's not saying, because what I can't do, Kyle Morgan and Blue Bearing is, I'm not trying to, to lobby in, po- in politics to, to do this or that or the other. Like I'm just focusing on, what what I can do is is show people what right looks like in this space of active shooter and expose them to environments that I've been in. And 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 with that, it's it's about exposure. And there's no one situation that's gonna look the same. And you apply the same tactic every time. It's it's not. It's here. It's mindset. It's and that's why I do protector mindset training. Um well, I mean, you're the perfect guy for the job, especially with your career and what happened to Molly. You know, you've been you've been through it. Yeah, the exact scenario. And that's why, like, my company. I started my company 
It's spelled BLU for a reason, as a as a direct correlation with Radisson Blue Hotel, spelled the same way, and it's also my favorite color, and um, it's also a direct correlation with as a color as a, with depression and sadness, and then bearing like Atlas, bearing the weight of the world, or bearing it all, like no human should, but we do, and I damn sure did, for a long time, and and that's not for hum- us, it's for God. And I can say that from this seat here because I could never see that for what it was. And, and, uh, and then how you carry yourself, your military bearing, you know, and then a compass bearing. So if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Um, and I was doing that my whole life. Uh, and now I've been in the light and on this path with a bearing I've been shown by God. And now it's on me to stay on that, on that bearing. Yeah. Um, but to start the company, it was active shooter, active killer, active threat. Like the Radisson Blue Hotel that was attacked November 20th, 2015. Like I was deployed in that country, at, but working out of the embassy. And I had been. Don't get into that yet. Okay, sorry. Let's, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> I know you're dying to tell that. We'll get there. But let's, let's start. Let's go ahead and start with the interview. But let's start a little earlier than 2015. Let's mm-hmm. start back in 1984 when you were born. Where, where, where'd you grow up? I, so I was born in central Florida, uh, a little, little town, Eustis, uh, Florida. Probably lived there for, I don't know, uh, four or five years. When I, and then we moved to upstate New York. So my dad's family from all uh, from upstate New York. And then all my mom's family's from uh, Florida. Um, but as a young adolescent, I mean, we moved, I don't know, 10, 15, 10 to 15 times by the time I left for, you know, by the time I turned 18. What kind of stuff were you into growing up? Um, so I couldn't sit. I never could sit still. I was always like climbing on the window seals from the way that my mother used to explain it. Um, it yeah. Imagine that. But um it, it was a very, um, I, I did a lot of organized sports that was, uh, my th- like football, baseball, basketball, like, um, from five, from as soon as I could. So from five years old, um, so I enjoyed like the team aspects of those and, um, <clears throat> like, but then the stability piece of what just wasn't there as far as moving around. So I can never really plant my feet and like figure out who I was and who I wanted to be. And, um, yeah. So as a, as a young adolescent, I just, you know, it, when I was younger and then when things got a little harder with academia and then, and I was just like struggling, you know, so I started acting out and, uh, you know, looking for attention and, um, it was easier because we'd go from one school to another and I'd be the new, new guy or whatever. And I could just start over, you know, yeah. and, uh, but, that played into a lot about, um, you know, by at 10th grade uh, in high school, I think I got kicked off the football team because of my GPA got too low, um, below like a 2.0. And I was just like, okay, uh, roger that. So I just started like, all right, I guess football's not going to happen. I mean, that was my passion. And uh, so then I just started, you know, focusing on all the things that would instant like gratification and, you know, oh, you like me, don't you? Yeah, I'm cool. Um, that was my sense of self. Like, I, 
I it had been nurtured in an environment where like no one showed me. I wasn't developed like by a positive male role model or or female. Um, it was very chaotic, and well, how? Um, like you never it, well the stability piece uh, like creates chaos in itself. Um, and then you know that with like just the normalization of 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 behaviors, and you know I just watched. And, and was either a part of my, my mother abused my father and my father just verbally, physically uh, would drink himself into uh, just to isolate himself in the garage or whatever. And it was just like, to me, I just saw that as what, he just doesn't want to be here, you know. And but one thing I will say is he never he never left, you know, he put up with all of that. And it was just so just raged in, in uh, like just jealousy and, and codependency and, and all these things that I just, now mind you, this is me. I've been 38 years later, I'm looking back with the lens I've been shown and are put on and, you know, it's in, it's in hindsight. I mean, it's not for a child to have to make sense of that shit, you know, and it's unfair, but it also is just a part of my story. And, it's, um, but I, I will say I lived my life even as a young father. Um, well, no, you guys don't have it this bad. You don't have it that bad. You don't know what bad is, you know? Yeah. And th that's just not a way to parent, you know? And I feel like I held my head for, uh, <clears throat> you know, minimizing my own behavior in front of them, you know? And um, that's the part where I'm really, like, I really want to change that you know, that narrative that break those uh, generational like norms and, and my legacy. And, and I can, and I am. Were you into hunting or? What girls? That was about yeah. it. Yeah. That was like my girls uh, and booze. Yeah, that was it, man. Um, and I say that loosely because or not loosely, but I guess, uh, like it, it, it was my sense of self was, Oh, you think I'm good looking or, uh, I look how good I did, you know, because I was physically fit. And um, those were like the, those were the escapes, you know, for me to say, well, all right, like, you know, I'm just this scared little boy inside, afraid to, of his own shadow. You know, there's a lot of people growing up in the world like that, you know, with, with a dysfunctional family moving around a lot. And there's going to be a lot more now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. You know, it's going to be a lot of kids in poverty. Mm -hmm. So looking back, you know, if it's yourself, do you have any advice for kids that are growing up in a, in a, in a situation that's similar or worse than yours? Yeah. You're not alone, period. Like there is, there is positive role models out there that want, um, to show and, and to show you and to hold your hand through the, your developmental phase. It's just more people like myself and that I'm trying to become need to step up and just take ownership of that as well. Because like, there's obviously my children that I have to change and, and, and work through, but I can also be that there for their friends, 
and the friends of friends. Like, and that's the opportunities that I have now. And I'm just so grateful, grateful for because I can focus on it. My priorities have like, it's a, it's a complete shift of like, I've been so focused for 20 years on combating terrorism abroad. Like there's a lot of work to do here inside of our own borders. And that's what I'm focused on. And yeah. it starts at the household. It starts at like positive male role models. Like we don't have those anymore. So you, are you saying these kids need to seek out a positive male role model? Well, it's not on them. It's like us. Well, I'm you, saying for the kid. Yeah. Like they what is just know that the there's, there is, there is good people out there and, and, what you're like, it's not on them. Like the environments that they're, they're um, like raised in, in situational, like, uh, like I don't blame children for, for growing up in, in mud huts and radical uh, extremism. I don't blame them. I don't blame children that grow up in poverty and around drugs and alcohol and, and abuse and, uh, I don't, they're the, the, they are the definition of innocence. Yeah. Like they are at a certain point that that becomes the, their reality, right? Like that's, and then they step into society and that's just their reality. But for me, it's about challenging other male role models to step up and, and like seek out these these you know the, this is our societal if we want to make a change be a good example be a good example and that's just like sh- showing people what right looks like yeah like that's it it doesn't mean you, you gotta have this many volunteer hours at this or that it's just when opportunities present themselves see them for what they are and and um realize that the impact that you can have is is profound and it, you don't you can't measure it and it, it's not like quantifiable so you just do it early and often and and i think as a that's how you impact change and but to the you know the children in the in those situations is like like this is the greatest country in the, in the world to to grow up in to to be a part of um and don't you know don't let the circumstances that you've been presented with you know, define you as a, as a person, as a young adolescent. Um, well, I think and, you're a perfect example of, you don't have to live there forever. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of kids feel trapped, you know, that they're not ever going to get out of that, but there's, there are ways out of it. And you're a perfect example. Yeah. I mean, you operated at the, at the, at the highest level possible. Yeah. So, so at what point did, U.S. military become, when did you become interested in that? So I think it was probably my, between my junior and going into my senior year of high school, like I wasn't going to, I got sat down by a teacher that like saw, he saw something in me and um, the potential or, you know, the, the opportunity to, to like develop someone, you know, youth. And he took, it was very like, uh, I don't know, I just remember it now because it meant a lot to me. And I couldn't remember a lot about my past um, for a long, long time. Um, but, you know, he was a positive male role model, you know, that, that isn't your biological parent, you know. And he also uh, served in the Ranger Regiment. Um, and I remember him showing me a photo of doing some like 
small unit tactic training and stuff. I mean, I didn't know what it was back then. I was like, oh, that looks so cool. <laughs> and now I'm like, that wasn't that cool. But it, <laughs> but it was like in the 90s or whatever. It, yeah. yeah. Just like blue, red, yellow, smoke, you know, this and that in the woods. Um, but as a young kid, I was like, wow, that's like really cool. And um, it and it was. I mean, like the fact that he shared that and then he wasn't trying to get me to join the military. Um, I was interested in listening to his, his stories and, and um, but he sat me down. I was like, hey, man, like you're not going to graduate if you if we don't like write this path. So he set me on to a path. And and uh, I mean, I was like. I had to catch up on a bunch of classes. I just kept like blowing off and either failing or whatever. And um, but he put me on that trajectory like in a short amount of time my senior year uh, or towards the end of my junior and then senior year and then 9-11 happened um uh 2001 and I remember I was in you know the classroom I was in and and it was just such a like a visceral like feeling and, and surreal uh to see the towers you know the first one and then the second one get hit and then, then go down it was just like this isn't real you know, even as a as a younger, I was seventeen, and I was like, "What what what was happening?" You know, and um, I mean, <clears throat> but it was. I mean, obviously, it was it was our rea- it was our reality, and I uh, I talked with him a little bit, but I went uh, and talked to a recruit army recruiter, and uh, and in December I went to Meps and did all the in Tampa because I went back to Florida for high school and signed up at 17 in the delayed entry program. And my, I remember my mother had to sign as my, I was still under 18. So, um, I, it was contingent on that. I graduated and then I turned 18 and I left two weeks later for basic training. So did you know you wanted to go into special operations? No, I, I joined, I didn't know anything about, like who was what and what units are this and that and the other. But for some reason, the 82nd Airborne I had heard of, you know, it, it's America's guard, yeah. guard of honor. Uh, it, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, rich in culture and history uh, and from World War II. And, and um, that's what I signed up for was an airborne contract uh, that brought me to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Like right away. So as soon as I finished uh, infantry school and jump school in Benning, Fort Benning, Georgia, <clears throat> I went, um, I reported to Bragg at the end of uh, 2002. And yeah, so, I mean, just completely wet behind the ears, man. I didn't know. I was just like a little punk, you know? Yeah. And uh, it, I got humbled all the time. And, um, I'll bet. And yeah, it was a... I remember the platoon I showed up to, and I was the only new guy for a long time, man. So I like ate it all as far as the uh, the hazing and. Um, well, before we get into your time at the 82nd, let's take a quick break. I used to live in Florida, and when I lived in Florida, I learned a very valuable lesson going through hurricane after hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. And that lesson is do not wait for the last minute to get the emergency type 
items that you need because they are not going to be there because guess who else is looking for that? Everyone else around you, everybody on the planet. So I invested in some long-term emergency food with my Patriot Supply. This is a one month supply. This food lasts for 25 years. Doesn't go bad for 25 years. You just keep it somewhere safe, hold on to it. And then when things like 2020 happened, the food shortages, the next hurricane, maybe a tornado, any type of emergency, guess what? While everybody else is scurrying around, trying to figure out how they're gonna survive this thing, you've already got everything prepped and ready to go. It's, I'm telling you, it is the best feeling in the world to be at home, see something happen on the news, and know we're already ready for this. It's no big deal. And everybody else is gonna be out there scurrying around the grocery stores, fighting for a little case of water or some food. My Patriot Supply is the nation's largest preparedness company. It is currently offering a 20% discount on their popular three-month emergency food kit. Go to prepwithshawn.com right now and grab your 20% savings off each three-month kit you need. That's prepwithshawn.com. All right, Kyle, we're back from the break. You're joining the Army. You get to boot camp. Basic training. Basic training, whatever they call it over there. <laughs> but uh, what was that like? What a shock. It was uh, like, the, you show up, you know, they shave your head, you get in, and there's a line for everything. Get in line. You just get indoctrinated. And that's the point, I think, to, to following orders um, and you know, and building a build to see if you can, you know, cut the, cut it. And I, um, I really thrived in that space because as much as I wanted or was acting out as, a, as an adolescent and as a teenager, um, I mean, I got arrested twice before I was 18. What? Yeah. I totally forgot about that, but yeah. Like you I forgot that you waiver. got arrested. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you get arrested for? One was like shoplifting. What'd you steal? Like a tie nice. from like a department store and like one of the um, like testing bottles of cologne. Oh, yeah? On a dare. On a dare? Yeah. It was like, oh, I bet you can't, but you can't walk out with that. And I was like, shit. <laughs> I walked out with it. And then uh, this guy was like, hey, man, I'm going to need my stuff back. I was like, what stuff? And I was just like, oh, so they took me in and, and, uh, I was like 16, 17, I was like acting out, man. And the other time it was, uh, we got pulled over and we were, we skipped school and we're partying and stuff and drinking and, uh, yeah, underage drinking. And I had like a fake ID that I made because in Florida, I'm not going to get into that, but no, let's get into yeah. it. Yeah. So we can't do them anymore. So you're a graphic artist at 16 years old. 16 years just resourceful. Nice. And uh, I would like sell them. Like, hey, <laughs> oh, you're only, only you if. You made a business. Yeah, a little business. <laughs> I forgot about that. Entrepreneur. Looking for ways to make money to party, you know, and, and be cool. 
Because there was a fake ID go for in Florida back in, what, <laughs> the nine, 2000s? This was in late 90s, 2000s, yeah. So it only worked if it was a kind of a limited model. But if you had, if you were born in 84, I could turn the four into a one, and it's in two places on the ID. And then I would basically photocopy. So I erased the four to where, like with a eraser, and then uh, cut out a photocopy of a one, like the same, someone's ID that was born in 81. And then like use packaging tape or whatever and put that over it and then and place it correctly and then you could with warm water you could rub the white the white or the the white off the paper <laughs> off and then let it dry and then it'll be adhe- it'll have the adhesive again and then place it over so it wouldn't pass like a it wouldn't it would get you into clubs like that would get you old and like dancing nice. and like underage or yeah, but you still couldn't like drink, but it would allow me to go and fit in and stuff with uh, older. I had like older, older crowd friends and stuff, and I wanted to be able to hang out. So, um, yeah, and that led to I had to like I didn't even know what a colonel was. Like in '06, like I had to do a, they had to do a waiver to get me in, and I had to like tell them like talk to him, you know, and explain to him why, why should he should let me join the army, you know? No shit. Yeah. And I totally forgot about that, but yeah, like I was like, who's this? And why do I, what? And I was like, okay. Um, and I talked to him and well, I convinced him and, um, you know, it, it, uh, let me, give me one second on that. Where was I going with that? There was another element of. You wouldn't have gotten in the army had it not been for that colonel that gave you basically a second chance. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I was supposed to be joining with my cousin. Like, we were, we both signed up together, but he couldn't, he couldn't score high enough on the ASVAB to get a bonus. Right. And this is what good recruiters do. They had me take his ASVAB. For him. Are you shitting Like, me? I filled out his name. And, like, and then I, I scored high enough again to where he, for, <laughs> so he could get a bonus. So he did the whole, like, raise your right hand thing and, and the delayed entry and then never left. Like, he didn't graduate high school and just, like, went on whatever path he went on. So then it was just me. But, yeah, there was a lot of things. <laughs> like, yeah, there's a lot of pivotal points that just, Worked out in your Work, favor. Yeah, it worked out, yeah. Well, I mean, Damn. there's been a lot of that going on. Just riding a wave yeah. of, of all of those. Um, but now I'm taking taking ownership and taking control of my own life and my own actions. Yeah. And that's really it. And, and the rest is for for God. Yeah. Which is a so really comforting in. feeling. Yeah. You got in. You're at the 82nd Airborne. What's that like checking in? Where is that? Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Bragg. Yeah. Was your whole career at Bragg? Basically, yeah. Um, yeah, there wasn't there wasn't much time spent. I mean, it was there and not there. I mean, I I, I got there and like it was just it was awful for one. It was the barracks were like they weren't the World War II barracks, but they were like the old barracks. Man, you could still smoke in them and shit and like. Everyone smoked cigarettes for some reason. I was like, 
was this like a thing? It's like Marlboro cowboy killers. And, you know, I was just like, well, I just want to fit in. So I was so stressed out. I, I remember how I, I thought about going AWOL. Like, because, like, it, it was, for one, there was a lot of systemic, like, just the cultural like racism and, and things that I just wasn't used to. Like, I was just like, what is this? And, you know, if I had something to say against, against it, man, I paid for it. And, um, because they would use the rank and this and that, and everyone outranked me. So it was just like, go, go smoke him, smoke, scuff, auto scuff, you know? And I was f- like physically strong, so they couldn't necessarily break me. And so there was pissed them off. And there was a lot of racism when you went there, and you stood when up. When I to first, it. yeah, and they like when I first they crushed you for it. Yeah, like it, it, there was um, I, it really was off putting to me, and it, it should be, but it was like I was like hit by it, where it caught me off guard. I was like, "What is this?" Like, and um, and that wasn't all of them, but like the squad I went to specifically in the platoon, it was kind of. Like it was, there was elements of it and it was, um, I was like, ugh. And, um, but I was also like trying to figure out who I am as a, like an adult, you know, young adult, I was 18. And, you know, I, I, uh, physically like they would, I'd be, I'd have my back to the door, like holding it closed every day, like in a squad meeting, they'd be chain smoking cigarettes and just laughing and, you know, doing whatever. And I'd be in the iron chair holding a Kevlar in each hand upside, you know, upside down. And they would just be putting shit in it and taking it out, asking me trivia. Like, and if I got it wrong, they would put more shit in it, but I would be there for, waiting on the word for hours at a time. Yeah. I mean, it was like, <clears throat> and I remember one, one time I went home cause I would drive back to Florida just to get away, like eight hour drive, like on a week, a regular weekend. So like a Friday you know, release and then come, got to be there first formation or, you know, an hour before that formation and whatever. So I'd be there. I would just drive straight through. And this one time I remember them like calling me, Hey, we need you to show up at this detail. And it was like a shoot shakeout detail, like that last minute. It was on a Saturday. And I was like, hey, sar- sar- Sergeant, I'm uh I'm not in North Carolina. I'm in Florida. Oh, and they were like, Oh, really? Okay. Well, no, just enjoy your basically <laughs> the way I remember it was like enjoy your weekend, but we got something for you when you get back. And I remember that day vividly, which I, out of, I don't remember a lot about just through physical and psychological trauma. It's like, but that is very vivid to me because I, I, uh, I got back at like four in the morning and the squad leader staff sergeant like stayed overnight waiting on me. Like had a home off post, you know, that this was his life, you know, and basically every I got smoked, like scuffed up, or uh, I don't even know what you call that, like corrective, like punishment or whatever, for a good 36 hours. 
No to shit. To the point where I was like, I can't, I was doing like, you know, I couldn't. And uh, yeah, and but for for what though? Like build character? Yeah. Now, I don't think it really built character. I think it, what it did do for me is it showed me what a leader is and isn't. And and it started to. It was like the, the first cusp of, well, this is what leading is and being in charge, right? Like being in charge is a title. Like I could throw a title on you, like whomever. And that doesn't mean that you, you know how to lead. Um, so that's why I've been very focused on like at its core, it's about communication and compassion for others to lead. Yeah. To, it just is like, there's a time to take charge and be in charge, like, and, and lead, excuse me, uh, in those situations where decisions need to be made. Um, but that's where I viewed and always sought out, like, there's gotta be something else out here better, you know? And I think very quickly, you know, we went to Iraq in um, uh, June of 2003. With the 82nd? Yeah. And I realized pretty quickly when I'm, like, getting off the damn airplane and we're, like, locked and loaded, man, doing all these, like, spirals to get into biop. And they had just, like, you know, set up. And I was like, oh, man, we're getting in it, right, right, as soon as we hit the ground. And I'm like, oh, here, here it comes. They were look. you excited? Did you want it? Yeah, I was excited, yeah. I was like, yes. And, uh, I mean, I was scared. I was like, oh, I don't know. But there were so many of us. I was like, oh, we got this. And they know what they're doing. And then we, they land and the, the, the ramp lowers and it's the freaking 82nd Airborne Division band. <laughs> Get the hell out and I was of here. Like, Are you shitting me? I was like, wait a minute. You mean the band beat, beat us here? Like, what? <laughs> what is going on? It was just like, I, I was... Uh, <laughs> I was really taken back from that. And um, I was like, okay, we're, okay, report over there. And it was like this tent that didn't have any, didn't even have the walls. It was just like a tent, no AC, like none of that, man. It was 140 degrees, man. And I just remember doing the acclimation for two weeks where you're just laying in sweats or uh, pools of sweat in these cots and it just looks like human silhouettes just like when you stand up from it it was just so and just like the ice they would the moments of reprieve you know like um they would bring in these big ice blocks like from wherever and you just like like try to like hug it you know and it was hot and um uh, yeah, and then and then we got put pushed to uh, our the base that we were going to take over, and it was this old chicken factory in Mamadia, Yusufia, and uh, that's when shit started getting real. And um, you know, that's the part where I think I saw so many other things, and we did so many different things as an infantry battalion in that in that space that in support of other different elements and, and, and special operations. And I didn't know, I was just like, who the hell is that? Who's that? Why do they look like that? And, um, I'm like, I want to, I want to see what I want to do what they're doing. Like, cause I also realized like, man, nobody knows what the fuck you're doing. You know, like in the big, in the earlier stage of the war, it yeah. was just like, we're like ratchet strapping emery boxes full of fucking rocks and sand and shit to on cargo Humvees is armor. 
to roll around. No shit. To roll around to just react to contact. Like, what, what's our mission? You know, just re- react to contact. Or just like nine dudes in a Humvee just waiting to get stitched up. And um, were you rolling out in convoys, or was it just one? Yeah, Humvee? we had our platoon convoys just yep. rolling out our areas of of uh, responsibility or whatever. But it was legitimately like fishing. Except for we were the bait. It's just like, yeah. what are we doing? Um, how, but, how did you, I mean, at that young age, in a conventional unit, I mean, did that strike you as, I don't know if we should be doing this shit. This oh, is, yeah, there was moments of that where I was just like, hmm. I mean, you see things and then you, you're a part of them and then you're like, I don't really understand that. And if they can't explain the why... Like, would they try then, to explain and the some, why? Sometimes, and sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they'd be like, because it's what we do. And I'm like, but I just would take note in my head. And I'm like, just like when I first showed up, like, okay, roger that. Yeah. And I, I used that to help build, like, my own, like, sense of uh, duty and, and act and how to act and, and, and operate. And I, it, it's continued to, like never really conforming to, well, we just do it without someone explaining. And I remain curious about it, you yeah. know? And I think that that's, that's a massive part of why I was able to accomplish the things I accomplished. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely fascinated in conventional, how conventional units work because I, I never had the opportunity to work in a conventional unit and went straight, oh, that's right. straight yeah. into soft. So are they... I've worked with conventional units, but I've never been in one. Are they at all open to new ideas? I think just like any any organization that's still an organization in the military, like a conventional or not, like through 20 years of what we've been doing, like they had to evolve. Mm-hmm. And because like even when we were training, train up for that, that first deployment, I was doing inner and clear trench, man. Like... Bangalore torpedoes, you know, Constantina wire and like getting down and like clearing by fire with mm. like two people in line, like Vietnam shit. Yeah. I mean, it was like we've it's it's evolved and it had to because it's it's trial or fire. Like you have to all those things that you did before that maybe worked for you in the past or was just this like garrison mindset of like well you got to be crisp and roll your sleeves up and they look really good on your arms man but like uh it it it's not it, there's a balance between discipline and and military bearing and culture and and accomplishing the missions being asked of you and mm-hmm. to truly be able to do those as a conventional force or unconventional um we've had to adapt and i think that the units that that are successful in the divisions and the cores and the, you know, they're successful because they had the ability to, to do that eventually, you know, yeah. and I, I'm being critical of this was in 2003, man. Like, yeah, it was, I mean, it, it, it was the wild, wild west. It was like, no one knew like who's who, what's going on there. All these things that we've just gotten so accustomed to and on the battlefield, like from like, that's where I, I believe that we, as a, as a country and a fighting force of the most lethal and effective fighting force on this planet as, a, as when it 
as military power is concerned, like to be able to pick up and flex a division, the 82nd Airborne Division even, to, as a deterrent from like, like a, a, an international, like from war, you know, and, and just by maneuvering a force, that's, that, that's, that's power. That's military power. Yeah. And we have that. And that's not taken lightly across the, the globe, you know. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it's using that as a, as a way to deter war, you know, sometimes. And, that, and the respect that we have across the country is because it's, it's found in, it was found in blood and mistakes mm-hmm. and failures and never losing sight of that. How, how many... How many soldiers are you deploying with? Uh, I mean, our, we, it was with like the brigade task force. So like our, I'd say a brigade is what, three, or it used to be three battalions. I think if there's, I don't know, four, it was uh, 500 or something so, soldiers in each 500? battalion. So each company is like 100 and there's four or five companies in a battalion. Holy shit. So you deploy with like 2,000 oh, yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a third brigade, you know, task force, and and then all the supporting elements, and and that's where you get into like battle space owners, and you know, like truly owning, like, and and war, like owning battle spaces, and, yeah, and that really comes into play as I as I progress through my career and understanding, and so having that, at least even having the exposure to it, maybe if I couldn't make sense of it back then it helped me understand it more eventually as I'm trying to operate in that environment. So deploying with 2000 plus soldiers, I mean, that, that, I think I understand why conventional units are not so open-minded and they don't want to hear new ideas because that would be 2000 new ideas coming yeah. their way. <clears throat> so no, I understand there's mechanisms in place and, and organizations and, that's why there's all these different selections and, you know, you, you want to, you want something different when you go, go push yourself to, to see if you can cut it and, and then fit in and, and adapt to it because you can't just say, well, I just, cause if it just goes back to like the person that's asking why, like why, and then, and then they're just so like, well, they couldn't explain why. So I'm just going to motherfuck them and, and, but you're not doing anything to better yourself or getting yourself, if it's a, maybe it's something you can't change. So yeah. then you push yourself to, to be the best, like to, to make the most impact you can. And that's kind of what I did um, is I looked for, there was, I was like, there's gotta be more, there's more out there. I know there is, I saw it in our, in that first trip. I was like, there's people out there. Like, what are they doing? And, um, and that's where, you know, it's, there's a ton of different jobs that you can do. And before we get into what they're doing and where you want to go and where you went, what are you actually doing in the 82nd? What is the mission? How much combat did you see? What's the op tempo? How is the leadership? I want to, I really want to explore you know, um, what that first combat deployment with the conventional unit was like. So I got back from, that that Iraq trip in April of 2004, and I 
wanted to try out for ranger school. That's right. And because I knew that it was a way for me to get to a smaller element or, or you know, as an E3, you know, mm-hmm. I went to the 82nd Airborne's like pre, pre, um, pre-ranger and they have a whole like order of merit list. And I think I got like second as on it as a, oh, wow. as an E3 and it was a big deal. And, and then when I was going to go to leave for ranger school, I met Erica, my wife, and I was 19 still, but I was at a club and, um, Myrtle Beach on a weekend and I had a fake ID and I was drinking in the club and uh, you know like that changed everything for me and I was like well for one she like (laughs) she kind of ghosted me after that so because she was like first of all military and he's 19 like red, red flags everywhere I think I asked her to like the military or ball that we were going to have coming back, military ball. She didn't go. And, um, and I left for ranger school and I got back and I, uh, you know, that end of that summer and I had my, my phone and I had voicemail from her and it was like, Hey, I've been you know, thinking about you. And, and I was like, Oh shit. And so she lived in like Western North Carolina, but and I just started, I fell in love like very, very quickly and, and you know, started instant father. Like I started raising my, my, her son as my own and he was uh, three when we were dating and, and then she got pregnant in January and then we got married or no, we got married and then she got pregnant. Yeah. Wow. The following year. So like, you know, I did, I was supposed to be going to do this, that, and the other after under school. I did EIB. I did was going to go do sniper school, and they were like grooming me uh, to. And I went to battalion scouts. That's, uh, so then I was like, "This is really cool." Like we got to jump in during training and before everyone else, smaller elements like you know reconnaissance type stuff, and and um, but I also was like I. I I was like, I'm not going to miss the birth of my, my first child, Kyla. And she's, um, so my priorities, it was just like, nope. So I, I just, for a moment, I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to continue to, to be away. And, you know, during that period. And, mm-hmm. um, so I was doing anything, everything I could to, to like, and I went to, um, the old guard that's so i went to the old guard for what is the old guard it's a the uh they do like the changing of the guard or the 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 guard the two million soldier they do like all the military honor stuff in in arlington but it was a way for me to get get out of the 82nd and know that i'm going to be there for the birth for kyle's birth and i went i was there for 11 months she was born i went to selection from there i went to sfas from there well hold on yeah hold on you're getting way ahead of me what was like let's go back to your first deployment Mm -hmm. with the 82nd what are you guys doing are you seeing any combat yeah no it was um i mean that was the first time i saw like death you know and like from combat you know it just other than just maybe a, a family member that passed away or whatever, like to see death and and to be a part of it 
What did you see? Uh, like us maneuvering and killing, you know, killing people, and and then like some of my mates, are, you know, being pulled out of Humvees and lifeless, and uh, it, yeah. So it, it was um. There was a lot that happened. That that whole that whole trip was a lot. Period. Um, Do you want to go into it? I think it, it's. I think the first time I I there was two there was two like big moments. I think it was when like we like maneuvered on somebody that was uh, either it was a. a uh, ambush position and we were able to, you know, flank through and, and, you know, kill them. And, uh, it was just like that. It was almost like it got intimate, but only when we were like clearing through that, that objective, that small objective, you know, and, and it was just like a snapshot. It was like, oh, what is this? This is okay. Um, and then like when I first, saw one of our own being pulled out of a Humvee, you know, lifeless and dead, like just dead. I was just like, it, it was like looking at both ends of the, the, the good and the bad or the good and evil, you know, and to see it, um, it was very, it was confusing, uh, in that, that space I was in, <clears throat> just well, in my own development. What was confusing? Like it was, it was like conflicting, right? Like the good guys die too, you know, okay. and then the bad guys die and the and reality, the that. reality piece of it just really, yeah. The reality was not, it became like a very, a reality that just punches you in your heart and your face, you know, and yeah. What were the SF guys doing? Is that who you ran into over there? There, there was a, a bunch of different elements, but we supported them on a couple missions, and I remember them. And they were the some of the funner ones, or I say funner, just more thrilling. I was definitely addicted to th the thrill of all of it, you know, and and the like, the risk, you know. I think I was, well, I know I was a risky risk taker, a thrill seeker. And it started to feed into that. And I was like, oh, man, this is cool. Where it's not like so, because there was some times where it was just monotonous, where we're just like, I'm struggling to stay awake on, on guard, you know, in the in the friggin' uh, <laughs> the towers and stuff that we just kind of threw up. And uh, we would just get mortared or, or rocketed every friggin' day. And, uh, but, you know, there'd be lulls at night where you're just looking through that one tube, you know, or whether if it was 14s or seven deltas, I don't know. But, uh, hey man, you just like, all right, just, uh, just fighting it. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I, uh, there was this, it was 18, 19. I was 19. I turned 19 over there and I came like I said, I came back after that trip. We we, I mean the the. I, 
can't even remember so much of it. It's like, I mean, I can, but accessing it, it's like I haven't thought about it. Um, but definitely formative, like, years and, and not just, like, I mean, it is for anyone that age, period. Like, that, that time frame of your life is, is important. Um, well, I mean. But, to, but it is, like, here you go. Seeing that stuff right off the bat like that, seeing your, you know, your boys die and killing at 19 years old. Yeah. What it was it about it that, that drew you farther in to, because it, it, going into be, special operations, more, that's you're, great you're, you're getting wanted, drawn in more. Yeah, I wanted to be more prepared. You know, I wanted to be around more, a more capable unit force. You know, and um, not that the 82nd wasn't, it was just, it's, I wanted to be a, a part of a smaller team and um, more flexibility, be, be more agile. And um, that's exactly what I did with going to Ranger School and then the staying in the battalion and the scout platoon, because it's just a platoon that, that supports the whole battalion. Um, and then, like, you know, eventually going to like that next year, going to SF, uh, SFAS, the Special Forces Assessment. Um, I was like, all right, this is exactly what I wanted. Yeah. When I saw that, um, like just how they carried themselves and selection, and and I was like, yeah, man. How did you apply? Uh, I think my well, I know my. Uh, one of the guys that was in my team had was an 18 x-ray originally. And he, you know, obviously went through that whole pipeline, the uh, special forces, like, uh, like to join the army from and right into that pipeline kind of thing. And they do all the special operations preparations courses and stuff. And then they go to SFAS. Well, he got road killed or, you know, cut. So then, but he wanted to go back. So he, he started really talking to me about it. And I was like, Let's do it. So him and I went together and uh, we both, you know, we go, that was January of 06. Yeah. And I got, we got picked up and I started the Q course, the qualification course. And that was a pretty long, long experience. But what was, what was selection like? It was interesting. I think, um, like it, I was very like intrigued by this out of the box, like way of thinking. Like, I just remember this one, one statement that one of the cadre made, he's standing up there and he's like, you know why I have my hands in my pockets right now? He's like, cause I got pockets. And I was just like, I was enamored with that statement. I was like, it makes fuck. It makes fucking sense. I've got pockets. <laughs> like, why don't I use them? I can't put my hands in my pockets without getting detonated on by somebody. No. Yeah. Uh, I was like, it just really connected with me. I was like, you know what? I like this guy, and and I also like to be challenged, and uh, you know, in the physical and the, the 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 cognitive kind of aspects, and they assess and all these different testings, and um. You know, and then land navigation, I just felt so at peace doing that. Like, it was just me against the, 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 the terrain and myself and the time, you know, or whatever it is. And, but 
everything just kind of quiets down when you're out in the woods and, uh, you know, making, making mistakes, making, you know, bearing, uh, uh, misjudgments. And, um, it was just, it kind of tied it all together where it was like, okay. And, um, I think the peace part of it too is like the challenge of it in the, the drive was, it was just, I, I thrived in that, that, that element. How many guys were there? How many guys showed up for selection? Um, roughly. I, man, it was, it was over a hundred, hundred and something dudes. How many came out? Uh, I remember, so they do like a formation where like, if you're in this formation, you didn't make it. Uh, if you're in this formation, they start playing like the, the ballad of the Green Berets and you like salute the flag and shit. And, um, well, they, they play a few, few things, but, um, I actually like teared up. Yeah. When the ballad of Green Berets, Green, uh, the ballad of Green Berets played, um, you know, cause it talks about the silver wings on, on your chest, you know, America's best and, but then not coming home, like, you know, basically placing those wings on your, on your son's chest and like for him to carry that torch. Um, it was almost like this, but yeah, it was almost like this, um, this part of me that just knew I was going to, I was going to die in combat and that was going to be my, like my, my, my offering, my, my sacrifice, my, my way of like escaping everything in, in, in a way that it looks like honorable or is, you know, it's just, there was an element of it that I am like psychoanalyzing from back then, but it was, yeah, it was a pivotal point, I think, where that was going to be, and I said this for a long time too, actually, where I'm going to go down like Bon Jovi, man, in Blaze of Glory. Like, that's that's how I'm going down. Mm-hmm. There ain't no other way. Um, for years. That's the way that I thought. Oh, for a long time, actually. But I would say it back then in SF. And it was culturally like, well, we were barrel-chested freedom fighters, man. Like, that was like what we are. And... Yeah. um I needed an identity. I, I, I yearned to, to be a part of something to help me like feel good about myself. Was there any part of selection that you found that was, what was the toughest portion for you? Um, I, th- I mean, the team week piece I thought was really challenging but not from a like making decisions or because things to me like even back then like i see i'm a very like visual like shapes and objects like oh put this together do this you have to cover this this okay cool like not that i wasn't stressed out like everyone else but but then um communicating that and then like being in charge for episodic like periods where you know, people are just followers because they, they just want to do just enough to like, so they don't get cut, uh, or spot reports or whatever, like peered. Um, and then there's people that genuinely want to give you the same amount of energy that you give them. And it's, it's filtering through all of that during team week that, 
they do a pretty good job of, but that's, uh, that was like really challenging is working through that. And, um, cause you, you, it's like tasks that you couldn't do on your own, like physically, you just can't. Yeah. So you have to like, when you're at your lowest, you know, or you just came out of a role, it's like being in ranger school. It's like, you're the, you get this reinvigoration of like, oh shit, roster number, blah, 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 come up here. And you're in charge. You're the platoon leader. You're the platoon sergeant. Here's your frago, emission, whatever. It doesn't matter how you slept the night before, or didn't sleep, or how long you moved. You just get this. Oh fuck me! This is my chance. It's, this is because you only have so many chances. And um, but then you want that balance between, like, I show up and you know, put all my energy into it when I'm in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. But then when I'm not, I'm just a like a turd. A, a tur- well, yeah, a turd or, or just freaking you're just an anchor, right? It's like that's why I love the the military like buddy system and and like battle buddy or or dive buddy. Like when I'm in dive school, like you are literally anchored to someone underwater, and they and when you're it's your freaking nav dive. It's like you get these turbo legs, dude, and you're like, and you're just dragging that person. You're like, bro, <laughs> like I was just yanking on the tether. Like let's go. Yeah, but then you're that person. And you're like, man, I was trying, man. I'm sorry. Like, um, but I just, yeah, that part of, um, you know, finding those relationships and nurturing and developing those with other other like-minded individuals has been, it's been, um, like, like what I've been so uh, passionate about, you know, and and putting this, putting the amount of energy that. Like I would want them, you know, or they would want me. Like I, I put that into them, you know, and that's that's been really great for me for periods of my career. And then there's been times where I've just been disappointed in my like, like what do you mean? Like because then it goes back to expectations. It's like I had this expectation of something, or others had that of me, but but an expectation is is a is a recipe for resentment. It equals resentment, and resentment is the enemy. Um, especially if it's something that isn't go, having goals and and uh, objectives and and things you're striving for, a hundred percent. Like, but having expectations of 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 even yourself, you know, like that you don't understand and where they're coming from, like that can be extremely unhealthy, and yeah. then you'll just never never be good enough right if you have these things that you don't even know like who you are and you have these resentments that start building in your own self and then and then others then you're now you're judging others and yeah it's um well it's led me to to this point in time right now where i'm sitting across from you and of this of sound mind and 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 with this clarity that i have and it's because i've been through all those things and it's got, I have more to do. It just looks, it just looks different, you know? So you move into the Q course. Mm-hmm. How many guys are in the Q course with you? There's a ton. There's like a whole student company slash, SWIC is a, a big machine. Uh, the training group, you know, is a part of uh, special forces. And um, really? How many so how I mean, many they selections? Graduate, they graduate like a thousand Green Berets a year. No shit. Yeah, 
Those, those numbers are that. probably like dated, but that's, I remember I was like, how many? Like, it, it, like you just said, like, it's a lot every year. Um, and, and they're the 1%, you know, and it's, um, of the military and, uh, and it, they're small, you know, it's a small piece of, uh, of a large, you know, military system. Yeah. Um, so how many, how many selections do they run a year? Do you know? There's like one a month. One a month? They may break twice a year or something where there's a gap. But How I many selection classes go into a Q course? I don't know. Like, I, I couldn't tell you. How many Q courses a year? They're concurrent. They're going on concurrently. So, like, if you start in one, you may finish in another. Okay. So they're constantly, like... Uh, your cohort, I think, is how they did it. And they've changed it so many different times now. Yeah. Like, you have, like, a an, OD, an IODA is what they did when I was going through. and um, But that was a – they were kind of piloting it and seeing it. If you could, like, start with a, a, a team of people, an ODA, uh, and then finish with them. But it's through the branching off of, like, the different language programs and the length mm. of time and then – if you recycle something, um, there's just so many aspects to the Q, the okay. Q course, like from small unit tactics to, to the survival evasion uh, resistance stuff. And then language school, depending on which language, like that changes the duration. And then your MOS is also like I was an 18 Echo uh, communication sergeant. And, you know, there's a weapon sergeant, there's an engineer sergeant, there's the medical um, and those are all like, some of them are close, but they have their own criteria. So that's why it's like, there's these committees in each kind of phase and you kind of fall through under a committee. You go in through a committee and to, to, to successfully completing a portion of the course. And then if you have to recycle or like Kaylee was born, my 15 year old daughter, she was born during the Q course. So... I recycle or not recycle, but I came out for her birth and went into student company. And then I just kind of got lost in the sauce there um, because then I'm just a number, you know, it's like, uh, yeah. and wait and waiting, you know, to get back into a, um, a pipeline basically. Um, Cause there's a, there's a bunch of people either, you know, good, good dudes waiting to get in uh, that life you know, happened like my, I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be there if I can. So I was there for her birth, and um, but then it's just like I also realized then too, I was like, man, I'm just kind of a just a number in this place, like, I wonder, yeah, and then I also, you know, going through the Q course, it was it was great, it was awesome training, man, and really kind of honed in on some of the. Like, like I really like take pride in being a Green Bray, and 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 I I firmly believe that like the most like capable group of twelve people like in in on a well oiled you know cohesive team ODA is like the most capable force multiplier and and like like combat little element that you can put in behind in any country and, 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 uh, make, 
truly make it and like a, a substantial impact. Like for 12 people, it's amazing. Like yeah. if you have the right people, man, getting all the, like all of them, I didn't see in a short amount of time. And, yeah. and that's when I pushed myself to go try out for something bigger or more. You know, Hold more, on. More. Don't go there yet. Sorry. <laughs> Let's go. So you get through the Q course. Where are you going after that? So I, uh, I knew that, or I've been told that if you're a communications guy, sergeant, like, they're going to make you do time and signal detachment, which is like battalion level. Like you get your time in there for a year and then they'll put you on the ODA. So I was like, how do I negate that? I went to dive school and I tried pre-scuba and then, uh, during the course. And then I went to dive school and route, but I had already, I went and because one of the dives, the pre-scuba instructors was in the comp, like in seven special forces group before. So, he actually introduced me to the company sergeant major before I was even out of the Q course. Like I stood oh. in front of him. It was Brian Rary and I still stay in touch with him. Um, and he was, he's like, all right, if you, uh, if you make it through dive school, I'll bring you to this, this company. I'm going to put you on the dive team. And I was like, Roger that moved out. And then I went to dive school and that was super easy. And, uh, just kidding. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, I've no, never no. heard that before. No, no, it was, it was, uh, man. Yeah. I've never been afraid of a pool before in my life. <laughs> I thought I loved the water and, uh, like I also love to breathe, <laughs> which yeah. is a novel concept, right? It's like, oh, I can't breathe under here. Oh, and you're taking my air source. Oh, like constantly. Cool. There comes the wizard. And you're like, oh, no, don't, don't go to the light. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, this is a very interesting school, man, but like physically challenging and, 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 you know, the cognitive like challenges of it are there's, it's, it's not a, it's not a game like the Navy, like dive tables and, and understanding all of that and, or learning it. And then, um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it was a, it was a kick in the fucking dick period. And I would just go to the barracks, like, and look down at the pool in QS, and I'm like, oh, it's beautiful out there. Safubo, <laughs> Special Forces Underwater Operations. And I'd be like, there'd be, like, cruise liners coming in in the QS, like, through the bay, and, like, you could see them over there. They're going to the other part of QS, and, like, oh, I bet they're going to have a great time. And then I'd like, look over at the pool deck and just, like, the the craziness that ensues or that would happen and, like, Jocking up, you know, drills and warming up. They got to warm you up before you get in the water. Yeah. And uh, you're like, you're just like drowning people. You're just like, what? Like your mask is constantly charged, right? So like, oh, get used to that. And you'd be doing flyer kicks. And like, and if, you know, some people, they either they drain it, you know, through cracking the seal or they like by squinting or, or, um, where they just can't close off the nasal like pass, and then they're just like, hey, "Sergeant, I'm trying," because they, they keep coming charging it. And then I remember this one time, you can't see anything, you just hear, and you're just like, "One, two, three, you know, doing the fire, fire kicks. I can do fire. I can do like a million back then. Um, but my uh, dive buddy, he he couldn't close off that. You know, they said kept charging it. It was like third time, and they're like, "Okay." Looks like you just want all the water. And they just like slow poured them with this five gallon. From what I can tell, it was a five gallon, but just, it was just like, 
oh my god, he's drowning. Like, like what seemed like for a long, long time. And I was like, bro, what it taught me though was keep the water in your mask and just close your fucking eyes. Yeah. Like, just close your eyes. Like, it's uncomfortable, man. But, but it, it, it makes sense. And it, like, they're teaching you just like with anything, if you can't do something with your eyes closed, then you need to do it more, you know? And that's, whether it's gun handling or, 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 um, you know, like working through, uh, especially like life-saving bits of equipment. Like you need to be able to work through those things and in, in different conditions. So definitely, um, fun, fun, uh, fun time down there. I gotta, I gotta take a break. A lot of you have heard me talk about my psychedelic journey this year and all the benefits that came from doing it. One being I haven't drank in seven months. I haven't had any caffeine in seven months. My anxiety's gone, my anger's gone. A whole list of benefits came from that. And that led me down this journey of researching benefits of mushrooms and fungi in general. And in my research, I found this company called Mudwater. Mudwater is a coffee alternative with four adaptogenic mushrooms and herbs. With a fraction of the caffeine as a cup of coffee, you get energy without anxiety, jitters, or the crash of coffee. Each ingredient in Mudwater was added for a very specific purpose. Cacao and chai for mood in a microdose of caffeine. Lion's mane for alertness. Cordyceps to help support physical performance. Chaga and reshi to support your immune system, turmeric for soreness, and cinnamon for antioxidants. What I really like about Mudwater is that they took the time to find the perfect ingredients to make a product that's gonna make you feel better every day. I genuinely believe that this is a good product. Mudwater is Whole30 approved, 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Mudwater also donates monthly to the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics, as Mudwater believes the country is in a mental health epidemic, and so do I. Go to mudwater.com Sean to support the show and use code Sean for 15% off. That's mudwater.com Sean. Use code Sean for 15% off. Kyle. We're out of dive school. You're going Barely. to your group. Where'd you, where did you go? Seventh Special Forces Group. Where's that? Fort Bragg, North Carolina. You spent your whole career at Fort Bragg, didn't you? Pretty much. Nice. Yep. Nice. And the training course, the Q course is at Bragg. The seventh group was at Bragg up until a certain... Are point. they the ones that moved to Florida? Yeah. Okay. Um, I never made the move to Florida, though, but... Yeah, I went right to that dive team with the company, Sergeant Major. He kept his word. Um, so I showed up, and the battalion Sergeant Major had a real big problem with that because I had to go do uh, in-processing, and he was like, ah, Sergeant Morgan. He's like, oh, you think you're special, don't you? He's like, oh, I got I got my eye on you. You got your range of tab and all this other. Like, I was like, what? When I showed up, I was like, this is the battalion CSM. And I'm like, 
what just happened? Like I did something wrong, you know, uh, by going to a school and, and, and doing it and like, and then that, you know, it, it was just, it was kind of weird to show up. And then that was the reception of it. You know, here's like, welcome to the unit, welcome to the battalion with a group. But, you know, once I got through that with him, like, he locked me up at prayed rest and like, I was like, whoa, um, which I get to a certain extent, like, Hey, this is still the army. Um, and, um, so I think the, uh, you know, it, it was like, it was still like very shocking to me that, um, and it wouldn't be like congratulated, like, Hey, you went to a, a school that, I mean, it's like not very many people go. Yeah. And if they go, not very many people like finish, finish it. And, CDQC and, and combat diver qual, qual course or whatever they call it now. But either way, went to the company with Brian Rary and, and, um, to the dive team and met, met my, uh, my new team, seven, uh, four, five or seven, two, one, five. What was that like? Were they welcoming? Were you pumped to be there? Yeah. 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 It was, um, it was, a uh, very levels of, uh, you know, experience, a few 18 x-rays, but, Guys that like Bill Digatano and uh, Dave Smith and a couple guys that I just look forever friends. You know, I've just still honestly reconnecting with some of those cats has been like such a, a great experience for me because some of my fondest memories were during that that time as a Green Beret. Really, what are some of those memories? Like the relationships that that you you built in in the team um to 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 work together to accomplish almost like sometimes a like like on the surface impossible tasks you know and you're like you want me to do what with what and without the resources and so you get very like give me an example it's like, like they're having you do what so a big one would be the the village village stability operations so vso at a certain point they, there was a big shift where they wanted us to go in and, and do more of a traditional, like live in the, with the locals and like unconventional warfare and, you know, versus. Are you talking about for real or for training right now? For real. Like in Afghanistan, that was like my last trip with them was, was the, to do that. And conversely, it was like seeing a bunch of different aspects of what an ODA can do, but then to really see what you can do is, is to go into a place where for one, you're not wanted and they don't believe that you're going to stay. And then you stay. And it's like with zero resources besides what you, you bring as, as a team. Um, and then building white space from there. So that was some of the, the my fondest memories were, were being on that team, seeing, seeing all the different, missions that we had and then leading up to being such an integral part of that ODA to execute that mission that seemed impossible um, and in the Chutu Valley and connecting Firebase um, Cobra and Firebase Tice in the in this valley that up to that point just natural like terrain kept it lines of it 
it limited lines of commerce, all these things, because the Hellman River was, was a massive, massive river that basically, you know, ran north-south. And this mountain range, the valley, and then one came kind of a finger came all the way down to where it was almost just a footpath around. And then everything beyond that was like you're in a different country because they were so limited, even through being, you know, this is 2010, being uh, you know, exposed to us as a, in the country, you know. and But up to that point, it was only like night raids or like maybe a, a, a medical civil affairs team came in and did a med cap or something and but just pick up and leave. So they were ingrained. They were just um, like the Taliban had had them brainwashed completely. And we had to sift through like who is truly support, like uh, like supporter of Taliban and who is just like trying to survive. How long did it take you to go through how to sort through that? I don't think we ever really figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> but we made it to where um, we showed them and proved to them because you have to gain their trust, right? Yeah. And like bringing value outside of, well, like we got it. Like the Taliban has all this, like they're going to, they got guns and they're scary and all this stuff. So what do you guys bring? Well, let's, let's go back to day one, mm-hmm. you know, day one of your last deployment with them. And then we'll rewind and go through all the other stuff. But you're talking about VSO mm-hmm. standing up a village basically and, and creating a fighting force, correct? Yep. So when you got to that village, had were you the first Americans that had been there? Not, not like I said, they they had seen us like, but only in at night or in passing, like just raids, okay. you know? Yeah. Because it was like it didn't just happen. Like, hey, come come to our village. We had to fight every single day, like, and it we were it literally exchanging. You know, we were in firefights with the Taliban every single day across the river. And they cleared out a whole village, Sartutu, and they were like, they dammed up the irrigation canals and like they were running wheelbarrow or dishkas and wheelbarrows up and down this thing. But the veg covered it enough to where like anytime we would get some sort of air support, if we ever did, um, they could, they would, they'd be masked to, from overhead. So like they were dug in and we were so exposed because in every time we had to keep that line, right? That front line trace, like that was it. We held it and we was, we switched with third group and we came in and then we would do like split team ops out there because while we were training, half of our team was training a, some sort of local force to go, come in and like be our security forces with us. And that was its own separate mission in a sense, because it, it took, like these are tar heads and like yeah. dudes that you're like, nah, you're, you are not the, the person we're looking for. I'm not giving you a gun and training you how to use it so I can sleep yeah. in a, in a, we're in a, in a, in a, in a four walls where I like, we had to pull our vehicle in it. And one of us was up every single night, like all night period. And we would have the locals like man the checkpoints, but like literally we'd be pulling security internally. And then hopefully they're looking outward. But really, it was like trying to create a mu- as much um, early warning as we could. So like Constantina wires with like soda cans with rocks in them, like straight up just getting creative about, you know, we've learned these lessons. But yeah. you, to come full circle back to that, 
um, to being resourceful and truly like it was very much to me like what we trained on in Robin Sage and and um, the as a part of the qualification course, um, the, the foreign eternal defense or the training the G base and guerrilla warfare and, and and but it was a lot of it was um, so we one of our elements was back doing that training the local force like to arm them and. And then we're the rest of us are out there. So when we switch, like I remember this one, this one mission in particular, or not mission, but convoy out there, they knew we were coming. Like they, they had, it was took us an hour to get out there. That we would I get ID constantly, and the this one we'd crest this one like terrain feature and just get stitched up every single time. But we would. This one in particular, uh, a new guy on the team, Ryan Hendrickson, which is. Uh, an SF teammate of mine, that was his first deployment with the team. And he was driving and I was like the, the, the vehicle, I was in the passenger seat. And, um, that one of the first rounds it hit, it like hits, it hits the windshield in front of him as a driver, his face and just spalls it. Right. Like definitely a disc around, but like he pulled up in there into the, the four walls, he jumps out, he goes like walks over to one of the Afghans and he's like, let me get a cigarette. And like fucking just starts changing, like smoking this cigarette, like, and I was just like, you all right? <laughs> it was just, it was really, um, welcome to, welcome to Afghanistan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he also, he, he, him and I, you know, he came to the team and, and he, I welcomed him, you know, I didn't like, oh, you're fucking F and G, right? New guy, like, no, like we were a small element, and the last thing I need is like there to Bullshit. be like you haven't earned the right to talk to me yet. I'm like I never believed in that, anyways. But that was one of the things that you know the forever friends, man. Like I've come full circle back, but like that was a really hard trip. Period. What was the rotation like? It was like every like was it a it week was training every, them? No, it was like every three or four days. You'd rotate out. We'd rotate out. Just based on the sustainment piece. Like we would have to get resupplied out there because it was you had nothing. We were like shitting in ammo boxes and bags and burning shit ourselves. Yeah. Like it was straight up and then This is if in you Holman province. This and was in um uh Aruzgan. They were Wood um they were Wood, so Aruzgan um province. But um the city center was Dewaru, but it was like its own like the Maliks would get together, all the mayors, and they do these like shuras and stuff, and they were like this big thing. And I got this. Some of the photos I was going to share with you is like me like speaking in front of the, like the whole thing, all of them, because I'm like, you guys screen. aren't, you're not getting it. Like, there's a couple, like there's a few Maliks out here that are missing, and all these things that you're doing are never gonna, they're never gonna be like, they're never gonna take to get the traction that they need to, to counter, to combat terrorism without the, the rest of the missing link here, you know, because they're just funneling and training, you know, like the Taliban have a safe, they have safe haven. So I was trying to empower them to, well, for them to take ownership of it and, and step up and like volunteer. And we need capable people like that want to, want to help defend their country and we'll train you. But we also just needed someone to pull security so I don't get my throat cut in the middle of the night. Yeah. Every single night. Like, I would have this, these night terrors where it was like, 
Because, I mean, you'd, you'd hear about them, like, sneaking into people's and just cutting their freaking head, head like, throats yeah. when they're sleeping. And That's why I was—I'm sorry, this was Helmand Province? No, it was a Ruzgan. Okay, yeah. sorry about that. Yeah. Helmand River. 2010? So the Helmand River runs—yeah. It, it, okay. So, yeah, 2010. And the Helmand River, where we were at, is probably, like, 75 yards across. Okay. I mean, it's a big— body of like moving yeah. body of water and like to the point where we were we were almost supposed to go do a dive thing to survey the dam like to redo a, a, a couple of the bridges and stuff like we were actually going to do a dive you know and we ended up having no our, shit you yeah, guys were gonna fucking we were dive going to, that river yeah well dude i used to bathe in it so i would, <laughs> I would have dove in it in a heartbeat <laughs> like it was it was like the only moments of reprieve you know like you go down there and just frolic in the water for a little bit yeah because then every you just you had to be switched on like all the time so like uh like i would i would run like i would run well once we moved in let me back up we had to we had to clear out the taliban from that village in order to then get over because we couldn't the choke point like to try to get around the mountain pass here like we it was a footpath, like the most, like they'd get the the little bikes through there, like loaded down with 16 people and shit. But like still, like we couldn't use that as our way to get in and occupy. Um, so we planned this big mission. To, to We did a damn Zodiac crossing at night. And uh, we put like an ATV on one Zod with a, with a bunch of people. And then the other Zodiac, we like, um, we just did a rope bridge and just like pull ourselves across. But like we needed supplies and cause we knew once we went over there, like we were gonna like have to own it. And um, that was the mission that uh, we had gotten reports from human intelligence or whatever, like that night before that they, they were um, booby trapping the doorways, like with IEDs, with explosives. And so we we're like, okay, um, I'm like, is anything changing the calculus here of like why we're doing this without like, you know, planning a little bit further into this versus like, well, we'll just go up and over the walls or blow holes in the walls. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. That takes forever. And like, part of me just was like, I wish I would have said something more like in that moment, but the mission, like through resources, everything kind of came together and we had to do it that night. And um, we did, and and uh, coming across like we had to clear every every like step we took, and thank God we had like a local Afghan force that was like switched the fuck on with they find, with finding these things, man. Like, but there was only a few of them, so each like I had few of me, what few of those trained Afghans that were expert expertly trained in in detection. And uh, what are they detecting? Explosives, IEDs. Okay. Yeah, with either road or like foot or mobile. They saved my life. I don't know how many times. Like you found a lot of bombs. Yeah, he's like. Uh, his name came back to me the other day when I was talking to um, that NYPD guy that I was training. But either way, he'd like the cow. Stop! I'm like, what? And he'd be like, look. And he'd like pull this wire and be like, oh, I'm like, stop fucking with that thing, dude. And just like right in front of my feet. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, 
But I mean, they didn't catch all of them and we did. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, you know, going over, uh, we had to <clears throat> be, be very methodical with our movement and using the cover of darkness to, to move slow, slowly through and clearing to get to breach. And we had five elements, right? So it was me and another ODA guy. And then a, a squad of uh, local forces that we trained. And then one of those, like, like the only other Afghan I trusted, like there was one of those cats. So it was like, he was up front with me. And um, I'm trying to remember his name. Sorry. Um, and I got to preach. I was like the lead element. And then there was another two elements that went into the irrigation uh, to clear that out. So my element was, was the furthest north, and then Ryan Hendrickson's element, was he was with the team sergeant and then their squad. And he goes to, I guess, the, the interpreter, like, stepped in front of the doorway at the, the building he was at. Um, and he goes to tell him, like, no, don't, don't get out of the doorway. And when he did that, like, he, he basically put his weight onto the pressure plate ID and, and just set it off and Fuck. you just heard I heard like the explosion and then I just I heard and felt like a thud a body just thud you know hitting the ground and then pause and then these wails of just pain and agony and I and I knew the voice the voice I could hear it in the earshot you know and crickets on the radio and I was just like oh fuck and I went to go run over there because it wasn't, he wasn't that far from me, maybe 50 yards, like not direct, but a very indirect route, but straight line, 50 yards. And I went to go run and, and Ahmed Shah, Ahmed Shah grabs me again. I'm like, nobody puts their hands on me. And he says, Kyle, his English wasn't great, but like when he spoke to me, I knew like what, how, like it was serious, like when he spoke to me in a way that he did. And he's like, no, let me go. And, but it felt like it took so long to get back to Ryan. And when I got there, like with him clearing in front of me, so I didn't, he didn't want to see me get, he would just, mm -hmm. they, they just cared so fucking much. And um, I got there and, and just this snapshot, I still, I can see it, is the team sergeant's on his knees like over here and like Ryan's over here in agony, like bleeding blood is everywhere and just bleeding out. And I'm like, what in the fuck are you doing? And he's sitting there like on his knees, like trying to pull his tourniquet out and it's still in the plastic. And I just, it, I'm like, you're fucking useless. Like in my mind and just went, went over. And by that point, uh, my other teammate, George like got had gotten there and actually got the tourniquet on uh, Ryan's leg, and then I was able to help George like you know work through the stuff with Ryan, but his leg was just hanging on by like the flesh, the meaty part of his um, uh, skin and uh, uh, tissue, and and just like he had lost so much blood, and I didn't think he was gonna make it like right there. And, um, but I knew that 
like we, I was like, all right, who's got a litter? Who's got the litter? You know, I'm like starting taking control, like as they're working, like Jorge's, t- you know, making sure the tourniquet stopped the bleeding. And then we're splitting his leg with his own rifle and like, like to try to like put it back into place. And, and then I look at the medic and he's, I'm like, he's like, where's, I'm like, where's the litter? He's like, we don't have one. I'm like, what, you don't have a litter? I'm like, you don't even have a polis litter? Like, what? Not, like, so I was like about to just like detonate right then, but I was like, all right. So I just went into and found a, a whoopee and just freaking busted out a whoopee and uh, put him on that. And I was like, fucking grab a corner. Let's fucking, let's go. You call in the medevac, tell them to come right there. And, and like, out of like using that we were taking fire from the Taliban over here, using the buildings to mask our movement. It, it, it was exposed, but it was maybe five, 600 yards from the, the injury site. And, you know, so they, they're on the horn with the medevac and, but um, we're starting to move them and uh, the freaking punch or the, the, the Whoopi just freaking rips all apart. And we stopped, and I'm like, the team sergeant tells me that well, they won't land right there. We got to move them another K, another kilometer that way. I'm like, fuck all that. I'm like, no. You tell them it's it's safe where we're at. Like, we're, we got you covered. Like, come in and get him out of here. And I got into this, like, back and forth with him. And I was like, all right, fuck it. You make make a decision. Silence. All right, fuck it. This is what we're doing. And I throw uh, Ryan on my shoulders and just run with him for that whole, like, thousand yards, man. And got him, placed him onto the helicopter and said goodbye to him. And I didn't think I was going to see him again. I just, he had, like, almost, like, no life left in his body. And uh, I just... That was like such a somber feeling after like the helo left and it was just like everything just hit me all at once. And I was like, what in the fuck just happened? And uh, yeah, I had to regather myself and then continue to like do the mission. And we ended up, you know, clearing killing a bunch of the Taliban and clearing them out of there. And then I think we ended up finding 27 booby-trapped IEDs. It took, a long time. it took a long time to clear through all of it. How many bad guys did you kill? With us in air, I mean, I don't There's no... In the teens, you know, in teens. That, that local area, yeah. But they, they would just go up into the mountains and, and then they'd just harass us, you know. Uh, continually because yeah. they were they were going to wait us out they're like eh, they're not going to stay you know so and then they were like but well, we left you some presents down there so just just even to get the locals to come back and like live in their houses we're like no no we're going to stay like they're like no there's boom boom you know and I'm like yeah show us we'll get rid of it but because we were doing the old like let's just search for them and then it got to the point where it was like, nah, how about anything out of place, you let us know. This is your home. Yeah. Like if something looks out of place, you let us know, we'll come deal with it. 
because that that town wasn't the town we were going to stay in. It was the one across the river because that Malik, the mayor, is the one that had all the pool in all the surrounding, like, um, isolated towns, you know. So if we could get him on board in our, you know, with what we were trying to do, then we knew that we would, with our efforts and then the ODA from the north coming from Cobra, um, was doing the same thing from the north. And, uh, you know, the, us taking that valley cost us, like, uh, three three guys, ODA guys, like, lives. And, um, you know, it's a, it was a really hard, hard deployment with so many different, like, like, there wasn't moments of reprieve. Like, you, you just were just stuck in it, you know? And then it, it started to become, like, all right, well, look, this sucks. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to go for a run. So I suck at running. Let me run. So I would create my own little white space by, I'd have like a tourniquet wrapped around my waist, extended out all the way, just right in my ranger panties. And then like, I'd have a grenade in one hand and my pistol in the other. And I'd you run. would go through a jog through and the I'd Afghan go for a jog village. And I'd run up to this, the highest point. With a hand grenade and a pistol. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was creating white space. It's like psyops, man, psychological operations. And yeah. I'm like, I'm not afraid. And it wasn't that I wasn't afraid. I was trying, I wanted to make the situation better. And the only way to do that was to show, to show them, the locals, that I'm not afraid of these, these fucking inbreds. These, that we're like cave dwellers. Like, no, I'm not. And, um, I mean, the pistol was to fucking throw the grenade, use the pistol, and then save one round if I need to for myself, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, because you're not capturing me. But it's also just a part of, like, just being in the, that space where you're not getting resourced. You're not getting the support you actually need to accomplish the mission. They're like, oh, you're buying. How are you arming them? Well, you're not giving us all the, like, the gun, the AKs to arm these locals. Like, and we're buying, you know, guns on the black market. And then you got a problem with it. Okay. Yeah, there's a fucked up like system here, and the disconnect between like oh this this VSO site is the same as that one is the same as that one. I'm like, do you realize the, the sheer geography difference and and then the cultural differences and just like one province or two or three? Like, you can't just yeah. say, well, why is this one so successful and this one's not? Get the fuck out there and see. Yeah, like get out there and live with us. <clears throat> I think it's uh. It's rewinding a little bit back to the hand grenade and pistol. You know, as as funny as that sounds, and, and, you know, every single soft guy that I've ever worked with, you know, they, we all say that, last round of the pistols for yourself, and, and it's yeah. just, it sounds like nothing right now to me and you, because we're oh, yeah. so used to that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. as a civilian, yeah, and there are a lot of civilians listening that's a fucking real thing. You saved the last pistol round you have for yourself. Yeah. If it wasn't like I, it wasn't like I was intentionally going out to like because I didn't because I, I didn't want to be here because yep. I wanted to die. It wasn't a death mission. 
it was a, a risk I was willing to take to make our situation better, even just a little bit. And, and I saw the gain that it would have by, uh, you know, but then also the risk comes with like, you have to understand the consequences and the consequences of, of doing that or just being in that environment period are that they will come and like kidnap you and, or capture you and cut your head off or, you know, dishonor you or, or, uh, things that I, uh, so like that last round is, is truly for me to take that off of the table for them. Yeah. You know, it's not a selfish act. It's, uh, it's an act that I've talked, talked through and thought through and, it's a, you don't want to wind up on national television. No, I, I, getting your at head that point, like how many times have you seen you know, it? Like, for your family to see. It just the, the screams that you, that, that are just implanted in your head from seeing those videos and hearing them. And like, whether they're drugging you or not, like, I ain't, you're not going to, we're not going to get there, homie. Like, yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing it. Like, and you got to be okay with the fact that that's, one of the courses of action that you will have to happen could potentially have to happen. Yeah. And I can look at you in the eye and tell you that, Oh, I've, I would have, I would have done it over just like that mm-hmm. to, cause I saw what the benefit was the trust that we built. And, and then the people like the locals started just flocking in back home. They were, and they would just thank us. Like people that they were like, no, no, like you guys, the Taliban are just going to come in and once you guys leave and make us all pay. And, um, just through like this, uh, archaic, like the, the Sharia law and, and, you know, all these things of like, you know, the, just the stuck in the stone, like the, the, the stuck in you know, the past of, 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 they haven't evolved as a, as a, from a like societal perspective and how long were you and just care and like human um decency how long were you and your team in the village before that the locals decided they trusted it enough to have come back um probably it was like it, it was um interval or you know you'd see like you know one or two the word had spread and then they'd be like, okay they come try us out they come feel us out we'd hold these big Shura's in in the town now, and the the the, uh, the town was Hasar, um, and uh, and then we stand up in front of everybody, you know, and and tell them, hey, this is what we're doing. We're we're opening. We're gonna we're gonna build a freaking we're gonna build a bridge right here, and op- we opened up lines of commerce that hadn't hadn't happened in the history of like their society, you know, and connected outside of just a little mo- mo- moto, like now you can drive dump trucks down this road. And I say we, I mean, we were the effort, but I mean, that took a ton of resources. It's moving like mountains, like moving a mountain. And, uh, but that's the, uh, the impact in putting our money where our mouth was like, for real, is like investing in that. And not, and I'm just really thankful that we as a, a team got to say these things were going to happen. And then they did versus like, Oh yeah. Promises this promise you that promise you this. And 
and then we just pick up and move out because another mission comes in that's a bigger priority. And so it was really good to, to see that. But it took a couple months for them to really start to believe that. Months, um, huh? Months. Wow. Yeah. So it was you know, they were like, yeah, you want a, you want a, a, a building in our village? Sure. Mm, what about that one? And we're like, no, what about that one? We're going tactical advantage, all this, you know, uh, can we defend it? Is it fortifiable? Like, nope. They gave us, like, the most dilapidated, like, walls. And it was literally, like, four walls that were barely hanging on. And uh, they're like, that's all yours. It's brand new. It's great. You're going to love it. <laughs> and uh, and we just, like, and then we got in this mix of, like, oh, we don't want to build a fire base all over again. So it needs to look like on the surface it needs to look like it's uh, just another you know another home and uh but then it's like well what about our security force protection and they're like it's my security yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> um that's where it gets in they're like what are you guys building out there you need all these hescos and this and that i'm like what fucking planet are you from yeah. Like, where are you right now? And they're they're in this same country, and they're sort of like fucking. Their Keurig coffee's too cold, and I'm like, why don't y'all come out here for a little bit, man? And like, you'll understand a little bit more about what we're asking. It's not. Yeah, it's, it's very. It was very hard to work in that environment where they're asking so much of us through blood and sweat, e sweat equity, and like, and. Um, uh, uh, like, no, this is the mission. Like, uh, but then the, but then they won't resource it or support it, you know, in the way that it should. And that was where, it, that's why I was like, I, I through m the rotations I've done before. And like, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I was like, I've got to get, I got to find something else or I'm getting the fuck out. Yeah. So what happened? Did you, did you see your friend again that you put on yeah, the helicopter? So, so Ryan actually, so when he was in his in transit back to either in Germany or in the States, he actually mailed a letter um, to Erica and we still have it somewhere, but it's like chicken scratch. He's probably doped out of his mind, you know, but he's, he wrote, he wrote something like, you know, Erica, thank you so much for, for supporting Kyle, you know, he, you don't, I don't know if you, I don't, you don't know this, but he's my hero. He saved my life and something along those lines. And like, uh, and then they, he was actually one of the first ones to do like the limb salvage and they actually reattached his leg. Wow. And, and he's redeployed as an ODA on an ODA team like several times no shit. after that. And just recently retired. Um, he wrote a book called tip of the spear. Um, and I couldn't be more proud of him as a human being. And um, just reconnecting with him after being in the shadows for 10 years after that, like, it, it's been such a great healing experience for me. And, like, I, we even, he's told me things that I just didn't, like, I mentioned earlier that I, I didn't remember. But he would come back in and too. And it was, it was just so, it was so great to have the conversation with him from his perspective and then mine. And, um, like, and then I'm just more, I couldn't be more proud of him as a, as a human. He's, and he's doing missionary work in Ukraine. Like, no shit. He's got a heart of gold, man. And like, 
you know, I think he deployed three or four more times with another with an ODA once he finally like recovered fully from it. I mean, like it's it's insane to me how they were able to do that. But modern like science and you know they they did say that like had we not gotten the, the bleeding stopped when we did, like he would have for sure been dead. I mean, even just seconds, you know. And wow, because he tried himself a couple of times, he just couldn't get it on to his. It couldn't make sense of what was happening. To hear his perspective is amazing and. Um, what's his name? Ryan H- Hendrickson. Yeah, maybe you can link me up with him for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I just people like that is, is it. It's a really good like feeling to have worked with with people like that, and then to see them through their own struggles and physical, and just to come out on, and psychological like that is attached to all of it to come back out and be the same person I had conversations with pre-injury, you know, and that's just like such a, um, cause that happened with my ODA commander too, from that trip. Um, he stepped on an IED and lost both his legs above the knee. And, um, I mean, this is the guy that played lacrosse at West Point, a freaking stud, Ben Harrow, Benjamin Harrow. And, um, when I reconnected with him, like after his, after he stepped on that ID and like that happened, I went to Walter Reed with my family and was going to go because I would just went to selection and was in the waiting period of something and, or it started the training course. And I was like, I got to go right after the injury. As soon as he got into, and he uh, came back into, and was at Walter Reed, Ben Harrow. Like I went up to DC and was like, I'm going to, I don't know, but I just want to show him like I'm here. And um, he wasn't, I went up there and to, I got all the way to the same, the floor he was on. And this is like a week after he um, lost both of his legs. Like he wasn't ready to see, see people, but I left like a basket and a note uh, to, like telling him, Hey man, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here. Like, I, I know your team is over there, but I'm here. Um, and then after that, I hadn't, I'd head down doing, doing what I was doing in the unit I was in. And to be able to reconnect with him when I was going through the National Intrepid Center of Excellence, um, uh, TBI, the treatment at Walter Reed, I reconnected with him. And it was like, you know, he's getting around on his getaway sticks, man. Like he had double amputee above the knee. He had to, he has like a world record for regrowing femur from, it was it was so far. There wasn't enough femur to 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 attack or to be able to support or tie onto a, a prosthetic. He wasn't going to walk, so he refused to, to let that happen. So he did some like, just like a, he always was that type of person and man. Like they went and like would have to re-break and, fra- and traction, break traction, and to and he regrew not only enough to like put on a prosthetic, but like holy shit. Like, like some crazy amount of like six inches of femur or something. I don't know, but it's, um, it's amazing to me to see these guys that I've, you know, fought side by side with. And, and, uh, while I'm going through my own, my own missions and, and struggles and, and come back together and we're all the same, the same good 
caring, you know, people that I remember just with a whole lot of, you know, story behind us. And, you know, that's what really drives me to know that it's not too late unless you say it is. But yeah. Well, let's take a break. Yeah, this is a good break segment. I just kind of skipped around, but we're good. When we come back, we'll pick up with after that deployment when you got back home. Serious question. Who wants to take the best shit of their entire life? Right here, I do. How do you do that? You go with Bub's Naturals Collagen Protein. You rip the thing open, you put it in your coffee, you stir it up, and you're on your way. Now, if taking the best shit of your entire life doesn't interest you, Collagen will also give you beautiful hair, great skin, and nails to die for. So, and you'll recover a lot quicker in between workouts if that's your thing. So now that we got the good shit out of the way, get it? Let me tell you a little bit about Bubs the company. Bubs is a tribute company to Glenn Bubs Doherty, who was a Navy SEAL and a CIA contractor who died defending American freedom in Benghazi, Libya. Bubs donates 10% of all proceeds to veteran organizations like the Glenn Doherty Foundation and 100% of all proceeds on Veterans Day. Let me tell you about Bubs' latest product that helps with energy, healthy digestion, your immune system, and your metabolism. Bub's Naturals Apple Cider Vinegar Gummies, which actually taste so damn good that I ate all 60 of them the first, <laughs> the first night I got them. They taste amazing, and man, I got a lot of energy now. Anyways, go to bubsnaturals.com, use promo code SEAN, to take 20% off your order. Thank you, Bubs Naturals, for being a sponsor of The Sean Ryan Show. All right, so you just wrapped up your final deployment with your SF team. You're back home. Yeah, so- What's happening? um, uh, Coming back home, you know, I was prepping for, I had to go back to the and redo the the 18 miler and the board for the selection and assessment up in West Virginia because I had went uh, to West Virginia for the for that assessment um, before that deployment and they told me like I need to go get some more experience um, so you tried out for the unit unit yep yeah the cad combat applications group or uh special forces operational detachment delta um and they told you you needed more experience yeah, how so many how many deployments did you had up to that point four but four they, deployments they, they were long deployments. to include the 82nd deployment yeah. yep so i mean all of them were six eight nine month deployments you know and but uh, this is a short amount of time from 2002, 3 to we're talking about spring of 2010. 
when I went to assessment for that. And I've, I made it through everything. And then uh, when they do the last thing in the board, I, I didn't want to talk about some of the things that I needed to grow. Like I, like I still was in this like team mindset of, like, that's just team business, man. I ain't talking about that. And they're not looking for that kind of person. You know, it doesn't matter how capable you are, you know, because I had made it through everything up to that point. And, you know, uh, that was a very humbling period where I was just like, well, huh, that doesn't make sense. And then I couldn't see it for what it was. And and I needed to go do that other trip where, where uh, I just talked about. What, I'm sorry, what did they not like? Um... It's not that they didn't like something. There's a lot of psychological evaluations they do, and you know they're they're very much like paying attention to the whole person. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can physically make it, you know, through time, making whatever the time standards are, and and uh, the great equalizer is uh, the terrain. You know, so you can only recover from so many mistakes. You know, no, it doesn't matter how physically fit you are, if you are on the wrong mountain, Ridgeline, you're on the wrong mountain. Yeah. And you can't recovering from it. So <laughs> you have to, you have, so like it was, I felt, you know, it's, it's a, it was um a, a, a very physical process, man. And you against yourself and the, and a clock that you don't get to see. And, um, and that's why it's like the mindset I've always had is let, like, let them, I'm gonna let them tell me no. Um, but then to be told no, it was like, well, hold on a minute. What do you mean? Everyone likes me. And I just did this, like, what? So I came home kind of like, what do I do with my hands, you know? And, and then I, but then quickly I was like, my team needs me. So I went and deployed, um, to that village stability operations mission. And do you think, talked about. do you think that was a generic a generic response. You need, you need more experience. I mean, four combat deployments is a lot of experience. No, I think it's a maturity thing. You think it was a maturity? It absolutely thing? is. How like old were you when you twenty first tried out? Spring of ten. I don't do public math, Sean. About twenty five. Twenty six. Twenty seven. Okay. Twenty six or seven. And I needed, I needed that that other that next that I went to Sodic after that. I went to. The special, the sniper school, and and then then I deployed, you know, for nine months doing that VSO thing. Came back, and I was going to take over as the assistant team sergeant, but I had to make a choice, like because I knew that they they said go and get some more experience, right? But it was that was that's as vague as it was, and part of that was on just on me to read between the lines and either say fuck it. Like tried, they didn't want me. They missed out on me, um, or like used it to to help like capture some of the things that I I couldn't see for what they were at the time. And and I I went back and did the long walk and then um, the board again, and it was a different experience. How long is the walk? Uh, which one? How long is the? There's longest? the one in the beginning that you do is 18 miles. And then uh, it's like it's like you do your PT test, you do the eighteen mile, and then um, and then you're just like that's a prequel. 
you know, like pre- prereq, you know, yeah. that cuts a lot of the riffraff if you show up and you didn't know <laughs> that was coming. Yeah. And, um, I mean, and I, I've ran the selection a few times as cadre and it's really amazing to see, you know, from both perspectives. How many people are showing up to um, selection for that? It, it, it varies, but I'd say they screen out to where there's 110 to 20 that show up. Like how many vetted in their, the screening pool is very, you know, vast and, uh, they're pretty selective on just being able to attend. And then you, if you don't, if you don't make it, depending on which point, like you still get, uh, it's the most professional like course I've ever been to. And then running it, you see like how to run a professional course, a military training course and, or, or just a, any training course like it's so it's like that perfect course on the surface but behind the scenes you got all these people just looking for work and constantly filling holes how many people were from other branches um roughly i mean a a vast majority is from the army um i'd say there's a in the like single digit you know, numbers, you have okay. guys from different branches that show up. Um, yeah. Were you more confident the second time around? Well, yeah, because I didn't, I mean, I, for one, I didn't have to do the whole thing. I just had to, I, I went in when they were, like, finishing up another course, and then I just did the last, the last like, couple days. Okay. And when I say it was, like, a different experience, it was because I was, I was, I matured, like, a lot. And a lot of that was like I needed to be there to help save Ryan's life. I, I needed to be there to to help like save other people's lives. Um, to to help you know rid uh, the, those villages in the area of of, of uh, terrorism. And and uh, my team needed me. And that's it's actually like a, a great. I feel really. I kind of I use that to help like give myself. Cause I was really hard on myself about that. Like it was like, oh fuck me! Is like first time I didn't pass something. Like oh, like what does that mean? It didn't make sense. What do you mean no? Or come back and then we'll talk to you. You know, it was like this. And I start telling myself, well, you know, they want me, but they don't. Then they do. You know, it's just like I just fucking show up and see what they say. And uh, I did, and I was able to. It was a different experience. Meaning like I was able to talk about things that I just. I get it. The, you ha- it's the mission, the men and me, right? Like it's it's a you're a part of an organization that the, the impacts are they're strategic, they're national. It's a national like mission force, and they need people that can you know not just uh, physically you know uh, like fit a mold or, or adapt. They they need you to be a decision maker, your process, your ability to process and, and make decisions on sound judgment tactically or in, and strategically because the impacts, they have second, third or effects that you kind of hear about, you know, when you're, there, uh, you know, working my way up to the military, like, oh, yeah, there's this whole second, third or effect thing. You know, it's like a, it's like officer jargon. Right. The fact is, is that you see it there and you have. Like your choices and decisions you make, they have like strategic impact mm-hmm. and uh, and like policy driven by cop, 
like U.S. policy, there isn't one. So let's we'll force this with a con op, a concept of operations, or a mission that we create, and and then they like, all right, well, let's put something. Okay, cool. And I mean, it's it makes sense looking back at it, and it makes sense in that moment uh, when they said, all right, you know, congratulations, and you know, I, I think I got teary eyed. Imagine that. And uh, that was probably the last time I remember crying for a long time after that. So it felt good. Well, not crying doesn't. I mean, it felt good that yeah, you got felt, yeah, going like, to OTC. Yeah. Yep, and then I showed up for at Bragg still, and that was a big thing, too, because the 7th Group was moving to Florida as that was happening. So <clears throat> I wanted to, like, tell, you know, the fam- my family, like, hey, this is what we're doing versus – what I was, what I was doing was like, just hold on, like, just wait a minute. Let me, I'm gonna sort this out. I'll find out, and then I'll let you know. <laughs> so you were, you're like, good news, family. We're not going to Florida. We get to stay right. We get here to in stay Fayetteville. right here in Fayetteville. <laughs> I'm sure Fay- they were Fayette stoked. Nam. Well, it, it's one thing I can say is that they've been able to, you know, grow up in the same and have some like some of the same friends that from uh, elementary school to, yeah. to like graduating high school. And um, that's a, I didn't have that. And I wasn't a military child. Like, uh, and it, it was that, that piece. I know that even though I've been, you know, out outward facing for so long, like I've been able to provide that through, you know, the, the, the jobs that I've been given or made it to, and then you know, been a part of, you know, so there is some silver linings in it. Well, let's get into OTC. So you made it through selection. You're going through the training pipeline. What's day one? I just remember showing up and being like, man, this place is serious. And I'm like, I was so like lighthearted. A lot of that was, I think, like a defense mechanism. Like, oh, you smiling and happy. and You got to like me, you know? Um, but that was actually one of the only times I took a photo and didn't smile was when we checked in that day. Cause it's like, da, 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 and then they get your badge and I'm just like in like a collared shirt, like dressed down, you know? And, um, I was like, damn it. Looking back on it, I was like, it's the only one they got. Cause I took, I, I smiled in every other photo, which is like kind of, um, you know, if you look at the, the, the wall, it's like, where all the graduating classes, there isn't, for one, there isn't like a, oh, we're going to graduate 12 people per operators and direct support. Like, it's going to be this many. No, you'll see classes with one. You'll see two. But they have them historically across the, since uh, 70, 1978. Um, and it's really cool to be a part of that um, once you finish, I mean, uh, the training course. But that's only the beginning. You know? How long is the training course? Um, it's about six months of, you know, we're very heavily focused in, in, uh, marksmanship and, um, close quarters battle. So really focused in hostage rescue and learning, you know, learning what it, what it actually means to, you have a new job. Like you, you, you come with your body of experiences and different services and different, you know, jobs and that's cool. But if you can't let go of the fact that you're being asked to do a new one, you won't you won't make it. 
and I say make it, you never make it. Even when you excuse me, even when you graduate and go across the hall, it's a uh, selection is an ongoing event. Does the what's the attrition rate like? Once there, you're that's in, what, there isn't like there's no metric to it's a it's truly like a like it only takes one person to believe in you for you to make it like to the next gate, you know, and um. But at a certain point, if everyone is unanimous, you're gone through the training course. And then beyond that, like everyone's job is on the chopping block. It's, it's yours. It's yours. They're going to hand you a tool. Here's your hooligan tool, Halligan, and be the best hooligan tool carrier there is. And then they're going to slowly ask you to do more and do more as your aperture starts to open. And you can see more of the room, see more of the, your awareness starts to pick out, uh, pick up because, you know, it's not, I mean, they've, they've already selected the right person mm-hmm. and now it's just a matter of, of, is this, is this person like continuing to adapt and develop to the environments that we're throwing him in? So it never ends. No, no, it's, it's, it's. You struggle to be mediocre in a place like that, in a in a, in a high, the highest performing group of people on this planet in one place, and um, it's a it's a it's a lot. Um, but it just depends on what your priorities are, what's your goals. Where did you go? Uh, I went to um, one of the saber squadrons. One of the what? Saber squadrons. So. It's, the Storks, like, and this is the history of the unit was during the seventies. There was a, the, the, a lot of the, uh, kidnap, not kidnap for ransom, but the, the flights were being held hostage and, and, um, like, uh, airliners, excuse me. And the military or DOD was asked to, all right, here's the, here's a problem set. What's your answer or what's your solution? So they looked, the DOD looked at the, at large in the seventies and were like, uh, we got kind of, we got this, maybe they could do it. And like an uh, airline takedown, um, <clears throat> uh, aircraft takedown. And um, the answer was, we didn't have something. So, you know, Beckwith and uh, his, his, you know, vision with uh, the 2-2 SAS, you know, and spending time there and the, the, the regiment in the United Kingdom, um, you know, adopted and, and, and founded what is, uh, was originally, you know, the two A and B squadron, like, and everything was built off of that. The spine is the long hallway where the two saber squadrons are off of it, but then all the support mechanisms are there too. Um, but that's grown, you know, grown to the mission. So, you know, in the nineties, they stood up C, uh, and you know, a C squadron from Black Hawk down and, Mogadishu and in that that time frame, and then <clears throat> in the late two thousand like two thousand nine, they stood up a, um, a fourth squadron, and then we we grew exponentially to to dismantle the caliphate in ISIS because this the whole like political environment of we can't go back into boots on the ground again and this and that. We're like, what the fuck are we going to do? 
they're going to come here and cut our heads off. Yeah. Like they're, they're literally cutting Americans' heads off. Like, what are we doing about it? <clears throat> well, we got these units out there that can, you reach reach out and touch somebody. Okay, cool. That's great to be a part of, which I was. And, you know, it's, but that only, that's only one piece of it. Mm-hmm. Like we have to, dis, we underestimated them by a lot. And once we got a look under the hood, going out in, <clears throat> in, in early 2015, when we were going after um, uh, the Abu Sayyaf and Abu Tunisia, Tunisia they, they were like the oil emir and they were just running, running oil in the black market. And like they took over old oil refinery towns and like, like forced labor. And if you wouldn't work, they kill you. Um, from the Syrian like people and, um, but they were also like, uh, Kayla Mueller was the last, uh, American that was alive. Um, and we tried to grab and go and rescue, um, on a couple of time, a couple attempts, um, her and a few others, but we were always just a little bit. And I say, we, it was just, it's a big moving piece to get us over into that, those positions and then not spook them. And there's so much that goes into it and you get really one swing at it. And then you have to bottom line is, is that like, it's just the pure evil. Like the, I'm in radical extremism, uh, like you take Al Qaeda, you take ISIS, and then you make ISIS into the Sunni extremists. Where you know we policy by, or excuse me, we, you govern from a political campaign promise, and you pull us out of Iraq, and two things happen: the Sunni extremism takes the fuck off, and then guess who hates them? Sunni uh, Shia, Iran. Like they they come in and fill our void, where we as a country like left in 2010, 11, 12 in Iraq. And, <clears throat> and then it's like, then it becomes this enemy of my enemy is my friend. And, um, because everyone hated ISIS, but we had to operate in that environment. I see we as the, as represent representatives of the U S government, battle space owners, even our unit became battle space owners. It's like, what we're out there with the like Syrian democratic forces, you got one of us and like hundreds of Syrian SDF, like real time, like pushing this flot while Russia's coming from this side. Iran's just doing all its thing and trying to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And like, that's where they've always wanted the, like to get to. And this was an opportunity they seized years ago. And the only thing that kept them from going straight to there was was ISIS and it kept them you know more preoccupied while we had to grow to a, a, the ability to 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 hold terrain where where are the hostage rescue direct action like how yeah, how, geez, how about you I, didn't force? I didn't realize you guys were doing that shit <clears throat> yeah this whole boots on the ground shit like <clears throat> so i have a very like people ask me under different um uh, presidential like times, uh, like, you know, what'd you think about serving under this or that? Like for Obama, for example, I have a, a skewed 
like perspective of what it's like to serve in the military during that time frame because I got to do my job. Us and SEAL Team Six got to go and fucking get after it, you know. And but at a certain point, like we just became, well, they'll just deal with it. They got it. They that button. They hit. They push that button, and we're like, Poof. and there ain't no return button on there. Like, how do you get home? So there's no like fucking. Oh yeah, you guys got to get back. Okay, cool. Um, and this, this like going and doing that mission, like it was the perfect size target for uh, a squadron of us to just to flood, you know. And we went so deep into we caught them with their pants down. They were literally like, "Oh my god, the Americans are here!" And I think we killed like forty of them. Like internal to the target, we probably killed. 12 to 15, like close range. And then external target, they were running down the streets, dark as fuck, just shooting fucking wrong buildings and stuff, man. And just getting their jihad on. And you're like up there, just like, I went back up to the roof to go throw the fast ropes off the, the top of the roof. And the snipers are up there just filling dudes in. And I was just like, what is going on up here? It was a, like a, a, a firefight from the moment we got in until the moment we left. I have uh, no idea. Well, I have an idea. There's just so many different things that happened on that mission where... Let's go through it in detail. Um, well, it was, uh, it was good to go after Abu Sayyaf, and he was the last one that had Kayla Mueller um, being held and like raping her and all the stories that you'd hear from the Yazidi slaves that would be either like they'd uh, not be freed, but they'd escape. And, um, it was just fucking disgusting, man. And it just was, I just sat, we sat over there cause we went over there to go like two periods of darkness. We were going to go do this, go get Kayla. And then that turned into, she's been killed and, and then he moved targets. So we, it's like the longest uh, no notice deployment, warm, start, cold, whatever you want to call it, ish. Uh, and we stayed there like with intense, just like waiting for months. And then we finally got a window and we went and it was this big moving piece from, from Erbil all the way into um, deep, into Syria, like aerial refuels, like it was a big, a big mission. They, they consider it a, a treasure trove of intelligence that we got from that. It was like something like seven terabytes of, of, of just like intelligence that we captured. And let's go through it. So you, you went in by Hilo. Yeah. So I was on the, I was on the sixties and we, my team fast up to the rooftop. It's two, it was three stories, but the third story was a cupola with a stairwell that went down the center. So think four condos, apartments. So two on the, the top floor and then two on the bottom. Um, <clears throat> we cycled in. So the four little birds went into the ground on the street with the other troop uh, to flood the floor, the bottom floor. And then we roped into the, the roof and flooded but we timed it to where um, the their charges, we knew their charges were going to go off before we could get ours on. Um, and, we, and when that happened, um, 
it blew our door, the doors, our breaches open. So, and I'm coming down the stairwell in the cupola and my like two ICs up front and it's a stairwell that, you know, landing and then coming back down. And I see this guy, uh, a shadowy figure kind of through, the, I could see from, I was on like a the halfway down on the stairs and I could see into the apartment after the door blew open and you know, the breaches right behind the two ICs and they were, now they're like, Oh fuck. And they're sticking the charges on the, on the wall to get out, like to put them up, to get their, their hands back on the rifle. And this dude comes flying in <clears throat> or out and may, maybe he got within two feet of my, my, my mate. And I, and he had, he was hiding behind this female and I could just see it like he's running out with the pistol and like to her head and like he had no idea we were right there and before it became more of a thing like I was able to to see that even just a snapshot of like I'm talking three or four feet of like depth into the room they came from I was able to key off that and then I shot him from the stairwell and the and essentially in the top of his uh, his head. And then he just supermaned down the stairs and she kept like running um, before that became, he made it like, it would have been like from- Me to you? Me, like closer than that to my teammates. Holy shit. Um, it was a really tight shot, like period. Like between her head, his head, and then my mate, like his off his rifle, um, under nods. So, and then that was just like, oh, this is how this is gonna start, you know. And then we just kept <laughs> kept going. And um, and there was like moments where dudes, and this is why I, when I teach people, because I learned this lesson and my mates did. Like, if I take my one of my hands off my rifle, I'm gonna transition to my pistol to do whatever it is I need to do, you know, lift something up. Because downstairs, they they got into a, a situation where they open a closet door and there's a chick that jumps out or whatever. And behind the, he goes to grab the, one of my mates goes to grab the female off of, you know, out of there. And then a, an AK gets shoved in his face and he like grabs the, the barrel and the dude just starts racking rounds off like next to his head. And he's just controlling the, mu the muzzle with, with his own hands now. He's in, he's in a wrestling match now. Yeah. And um, now my other mate had to like get into a position to like take a shot on this cat. And and that's to, to me, I'm like, and it's the same way with like ladders. Like I'm, they've shot someone on a roof from popping up where ISR said they, the roof was clear and um, they're hiding under layers of shit, man. Then you get a gun shoved in your face. You're like, well, well, at least I have my red dot sight looking through my nods as I'm coming up on a ladder rung. But it's a, <clears throat> it, it, it's something that I talk about and it's founded in like real world experience on why, you know, with like rifles aren't meant to be shot with one hand. Like it's, it's I'm strong. And we're, there's plenty of strong people out there, but you know that's not the way that they're they're meant to cycle and, and to function, and not damn sure not shoot accurately or, or surgically. So for me, it's like, but I can do that with my pistol in one hand if I need to. Um, so transition.
How did the op end? Man, we got like it was the daps barely made it back. The close airs are like our like they got shot through the, the fuel refueling boom and like they barely were able to fly those things back. Like, wow. It was a we probably I mean we we fucked them up. Like period. And anyone that was still alive that was ISIS, they came in, the leadership came in and, and executed them for not dying with their commanders. But um but it allowed us to look into holy shit, they're moving tons of money on the black market and the oil and it just the web of like how serious like it it was becoming and uh how much it could have been like our reality at home yeah um yeah and it and that led to between the intelligence we got then to capturing his wife and them interrogating her um the kurds uh to to pinpointing al, al baghdadi where we were at, where we were able to go over and and kill him and i all stemmed from that op mhm it's fucking amazing let's rewind yeah let's rewind a little bit so you get through training you show up to b what's the culture like i didn't say b i did just now though <laughs> Um, it's kind of, uh, you know, everybody, like, there's this whole stigma, like, the personalities of a squadron, and B has this, like, oh, man, as long as you don't go to B, when you're going to OTC, or when you graduate, you're going across the hall, as long as you don't go to B, man, you be good. It's like this, it's almost That's like... the one everybody wants? No, 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 it's like this, like, ranger, like, it, it's... It, I believe that there was, like, there is personalities, and like, and they have their own, and it's very much its own, like, fighting force, you know, and self-contained. Um, I, and I did see some of, I think, the residual, like, pieces pieces of it, where you get this whole like blow off, beast squadron blow off. It's like, it's so, you know, through the hallway with other squadrons, you know. It's just like, but that, then I'm there, and I'm like, nah, fuck that, like. <laughs> Smiling in the fucking photos and stuff. I'm like, what? You want me to? No, that's what we do. Goes back to the why. I'm like, why? Oh, well, it's just what we do. I'm like, oh, cool. Okay. Like, I'm just gonna accomplish the mission, perform to the ta the tasks that I'm asked, and and if you and it's very much a performance based organization. Like, and if you can, if you can continue to perform at a, at such a high level then you'll be successful. Um, but there's this, uh, it, like, it is a, a stigma of, of like, oh, you know, you get there, there's are assholes, you know, or whatever, in that squadron. It's, uh, I think I saw some of the older generational stuff, but the, just like with anything, you know, it's, how do you make it, like, how do you change something? Like, you yeah, know, you impact it and and at the level you can, and and ask why, and if it's just well that's just what we do, then I'm like nah let's actually be social and 
I would because before when I showed up, it was like you can't you got to like knock on team rooms on especially other teams in your own troop. And it was a really hard time period for our squad and our troop. You know, losing guys and it, uh, that's what I showed up after. And there was a lot of in not infighting, but there was a lot of of um, dysfunction. Yeah, yeah, and and I don't blame them for. The, the things that, that happened and they went through and um but I was able to go in and and you know be the glue I think and because every time I got promoted like I went to and I stayed in the same troop but I went to another team so I went from the, the mobility teams to the climbing teams to the water teams to the climbing team like um so for one I got to do a bunch of different stuff as far as like infill techniques and skills like um and, uh, but also like have a piece of my own self in each of the team rooms and, you know, photos that they keep and, you know, on the, you know, the culture piece of it, you know? And yeah, yeah that's why I, I was really, I didn't tell anyone I went to Sodic because I knew that they were trying to pull me to recce right away or, um, I just wanted to be the best assaulter I could and best team, like... You wanted to be operator. an assaulter. You don't want to go to the sniper team. Yeah. No shit. Why is that? But I think I know why. I wanted to, be, I wanted to become the... There was always this, like, I hadn't felt like I was good enough yet. Like, as an operator, a journeyman operator, and then as, a, as, a, as an assistant breacher, and then as a breacher, it's just like, this, it opens up this, like, there's just so much more to learn. You know, and and to refine, I was like, I can't step away to go do another skill set. You know that enhances and 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 has its like they all like work together. But I felt selfishly, I was like, I'm better served doing this, and and they also saw that too. So because they, I mean, they could just read my thing and see that I was sort of you know qualified or whatever, and they could have been like similar recce. Um, and you stay in the same squadron. It's just, um, yeah, I was always in the same, the same troop, and 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 it led to me being in the right place at the right time. What? How long was it before you made it through OTC? You went to your squadron. How long were you there before you went on your first combat deployment? Two thousand uh, six months, five months. That's it. Yeah. Four months? Four months and you're out the door? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yep, in Afghanistan. I mean, you're, you're in one of the most, the most, arguably, arguably the most capable unit in the entire world. What's the, what's the operational tempo when you finally do, well, I guess not finally, four months later when you're in Afghanistan? Um, I mean, even, this was in 2000. 12, beginning of 2012. Yeah. I think we were still, we were still like our, our op tempo was, was still pretty high. Like we were going out. I say high, it, relatively speaking. I mean, there's this whole like, oh, you know, this hate, if you weren't in the unit during the heyday, like, what do you really know? You know, like early 2000s. I'm like, I don't know. I'm here though. Like, what yeah. do you mean? Like, I, it's just like. Well, I mean, where are you going out? No, it once would be like week, it, no, it'd be a like night. a couple times a, a week we'd go out, um, versus like twice a night or, or nightly or whatever. 
and sometimes it like it would be like back to back you know but i'd say on average it was you know two two hits a a night but we we also got really creative with with how we were targeting and instead of just saying well you know you guys are you aren't feeding us targets right like all right fuck up fuck that we like finding creative ways of targeting that aren't so creative if you just really look at hey man maybe they've just started to use some older methods and you're like okay cool let's look for work like what like what methods hand, hand, uh, like icon radios like got it the cell phones that like, gigs up you know they've they've they're they're savvy you know the enemy's savvy now so they'll have like you know operational security using cell phones and just freaking telling each other all these intimate stories on the damn H- the handheld radios and you're like all right cool let's start targeting those and and then we just started using that with with Emmett like uh, from above and and um, all right there we go they were doing all these like tactical moves marches man and we just started fucking them up like bad it was great how are you doing it. So they would they would like oust people from they they'd be walking all night until they find a, a, a home, and then they'd occupy it by force, um, rape and do whatever the fuck they do, feed me, sleep me, sleep, you know, or or if they couldn't, um, they would sleep outside in the right like right outside the. So it's like fuck me, feed me, and give me a place to sleep. Yeah, and we'd be like, well, we're gonna come do all three for you, bud, because we watched you walk here. <laughs> um no it's it just yeah it, it goes back to the, so what were you guys doing when you got there were so you we killing do, them were we you capturing do, them no they would they vote so everybody gets a vote um they we would offset our um air, our airlift so we had the sixes so the little birds but we would keep them offset to one side of the the infill and then because the shit hooks the chinooks like they the whirly bird you know yeah that you could hear those things coming from so they'd always start shooting it up like whoever was on the the chinooks and then they would never even see us on the pods from the little birds on like kind of the other side and it would just you'd clean up you know on infill and essentially they would stay aerial as like cover while we were maneuvering um, the assault force, and then once they got set, they would infill them, and then they then we'd push through. And did it you say a ambush, man? It's like, did you say an a vote? A vote. They they get to vote. Who votes? The enemy. The enemy gets to vote. Meaning, like we don't just necessarily go in there to kill you. I mean, there's missions where it's like, this is a kill or capture mission, mm-hmm. and that's still a vote. Like, unless we get told specifically, like, we need to capture this person, and then there better be a really good reason why, um, because that changes the techniques that you'll use and the force, the risk to force, you know, to do that. Um, But then the, yeah, I mean, so, like, when I say vote, like, if if they're standing there with their hands up, if you can't discriminate your target, and if you assume, if you, if this is a threat to you, then, like, you still, you, you have to think in man's game. You don't get paid. Anyone can just shoot people. Mm-hmm. Like us, like, we have to be able to, 
think and shoot th surgically, but and account for our shots, what's in front of at and beyond. Um, and if you can't, you don't, you don't stay there. You know, that's just that. And it's um, rapidly processing, you know, threats and non-threats and then taking custody of those until you can determine if that is an actual threat. And we've just gotten so, so good at it over the years of like through call outs and things like that, like, you know, like, cause they'll set themselves off with uh, explosive vests and like belt, belly belts and all these things. And you just learn all these lessons through, through pain and through blood and, and loss. Um, but you can, you can do all, you, there's all kinds of things that we've built to do to, to continue to discriminate until we say you are no longer a threat. And now you, you know, you're coming back with us. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's why I carry these with me. In case I got to detain somebody. Right on. Yeah. How many deployments did you do over there? Um, like five. Five deployments and then I don't know how many. A handful of... Uh, uh, zero, like zero, 300, like we get a call, you get, a, you get rolled up in country X and that button I was talking about mm -hmm. gets pushed. A lot of those. Yeah. Once they found that button, holy shit. Yeah. They were like, you know what? This fucking button works. <laughs> we like just, this button. They're just hitting it. And then <laughs> it's just such a, a massive like thing that happens logistically. Like we started doing it a lot, so much. I mean, a lot and a lot more and a lot more and you know sometimes they don't result in us like us maybe we're sitting in country x waiting on trigger to go and then that doesn't get met or we get told by the president to stand down or return to base which is like base you mean you mean 18 hours back that way yeah <laughs> let's go through one of the buttons just any, oh, just what, one comes, what comes to your there's mind? just one button. It's just one button. Yeah. I mean, when it gets pushed, first one that comes to your mind, where are you at? What are you doing? Uh, I mean, I, I mean, since Benghazi, since 2012, like, that button's been getting hit. Mm -hmm. And I can't even... I'm not going to elaborate on all the different times, but just understand that if you're an American, like being held abroad in a country that we can do something about, like where it's not going to be a full, full on World War III situation, we're going to go rescue you. I guess what I'm getting at is I want to hear and I want the audience to feel the experience of oh. when that well, your, budding your bag, gets so like your, your, So if you could walk us through. So each bag has like a plate, like it's tagged and it has like, and you do this, like you have to maintain it. So you're training all week long and then you always button your stuff back up on weekends in case you get the pager or whatever. And you, you know, you have to, the, that sequence starts and you miss that train, man. You miss the train. You, either, you might catch the follow on bird or something, but don't miss the train. And it's one of those things that, like, you, you're you're at a state of readiness and ready to go, but you're also training for 
like you're no no fail mission. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, you get pretty pretty good at repacking your shit up. And yeah. the whole point is that if you and I come in, like I can grab your shit, and I know that you've got three bags. They're tagged, and they're in the truck. And then that truck gets loaded, and once it's good, like me as the, the leader or second to uh, I see, like I say, all right, we're up. And then that gives you time to get to get there. If you were, you know, it took you a little bit longer or whatever to get into the unit, uh, and then you go to the the airfield and load up the C-17s and off you go. Plan and route, build whatever charges you need in route, do, do all the shit you need to do. But we're coming. I mean, and it, we could roll off of the bird, the tailgate, the ramp, and right into a driving to the target or go into like a, a mission support site that we deem that we need to do. Um, it could look a multitude of ways, and we have different packages that we... Are you home just as fast? No. no. You're no. hanging out there no, for a while? No, redeployment piece is always like an afterthought. Um, because it's a big moving piece. Like, those those aircrafts, they're dedicated to us, but for return, that's not that they get prioritized mm-hmm. you know, based on, well the DOD's like prioritization. Yeah. So I, and that's the part where like movement of, of people and amounts of people I'm not going to talk about, but just broadly it's, there's a state of readiness that we maintain and between, you know, us and our Navy counterparts, like it's a lot, a lot of responsibility. And it's been used not only for what it, what it's intended, but also to, Battle space, be battle space owners too, like dismantling the caliphate and that with ISIS. And it's like, like the whole, my whole mission uh, in, in Africa was to maintain relationships with the embassy, with the country team, wearing a suit every day so we could divest of the trance of hell at the SEAL Team 6. Do you want to write, go into that, the hotel? Are you ready for that? I can take a break for a sec. You want a break? Yeah, I think it's a good break for, or a, a good time to get, start going into it. But let's let break. take a break for a second. I want to give a big thank you out right now to all the Vigilance Elite patrons out there that are watching the show right now. Just want to say thank you guys. You are our top supporters, and you're what makes this show actually happen. If you're not on Vigilance Lead Patreon, I want to tell you a little bit about what's going on in there. So, we do a little bit of everything. There's plenty of behind-the-scenes content from the actual Sean Ryan show. On top of that, basically what I do is I take a lot of the questions that I get from you guys, or the patrons, and then I turn them into videos. So we get, right now, there's a lot of concern about self-defense, home defense, crimes on the rise, all throughout the country, actually all throughout the world. And so we talk about everything from how to prep your home, how to clear your home, how to get familiar with a firearm, both rifle and pistol, for beginners and advanced. We talk about mindset, we talk about defensive driving. We have an end of the month live chat that I'm on at the end of every month where we can talk about whatever topics you guys have. It's actually done on Zoom. 
you might enjoy it. Check it out. And if Zoom's not your thing, or you don't like live chats, like I said, there's a library of well over 100 videos on where to start with prepping, all the firearm stuff, pretty much anything you can think of, it's on there. So anyways, go to www.patreon.com slash vigilance elite, or just go in the link in the description. It'll take you right there. And if you don't want to, and you just want to continue to watch the show, that's fine too. I appreciate it either way. Love you all. Let's get back to the show. Thank you. All right, we're back from the break. We're getting into Molly, the hotel. What are you doing there? Yeah, so that deployment, it was a deployment cycle where, um, you know, I was an advisor to the the U.S. ambassador or country team as a DOD, you know, task force representative uh, advising on, you know, uh, task force operations, which we weren't able to, to do. And really the French were, and it and are like the only like kinetic, like assault force, like combating, you know, AQIM and, and ISIS and, and, and the, uh, you know, all the Islamic Maghreb stuff like Mokhtar Balmokhtar's crew and the trans Sahel. So from Libya all the way down, you know, through they've used the smuggling routes from, from like tobacco smuggling and all these different things uh, as safe havens to to build training camps and to move people forces like recent regroup. You know, for years they've been doing it and through the Trans Sahel and you know our the fact that we allocated even one of us there for for years like in rotating it was to build you know, a force to be able to, to combat that. But, you know, not to get into politics, but I mean, the political environment didn't, didn't allow us to, to operate at the, le the level that we needed to. And then ISIS became a real thing. And back to my, my point about us being tasked with dismantling the caliphate, we needed every last one of us. So we, um, my mission was to maintain relationships at the U.S. Embassy and country team um, to divest of the Trans Sahel of the SEAL Team 6. So we I mean, can hand that off to them. Like, so they could at least hopefully apply some more energy into it. Not that they weren't already, like, in the Horn of Africa and Afghanistan, like, just doing a bunch of stuff. Like, but with us, we needed every last one of us to go in to like in to from Iraq into Syria and like these pilot teams pushing in to not only just do these raids in deep into to enemy territory. If we were going to do this, we had to like maneuver on the ground. Um, and I, I say all that because for one, I was only in country for three weeks when, when the hotel attack happened, but it damn sure wasn't my mission. And that being said, like, I didn't have a mission. The mission was maintaining relationships. Like, they don't put you through all that training to then that be, that be like. Yeah, it almost seems like. It, well, I'll tell you what, the, the part that really, and this is, goes back to like, I was exactly where I needed to be 
when I needed to be there. And I hang on to that because a month before that deployment, I wasn't going there. I was going into those teams going into Syria or like a, a former like troop mate of mine basically told his team leader last minute, oh, I don't feel comfortable, you know, wearing a suit and like briefing the ambassador and stuff like that. Like, I don't want to, I don't think I can do it. And, and I go, the fuck do you mean you don't think you can do it? Like when I find, cause they asked me, my team leader was like, Kyle, I know you don't want to hear this, but I need you to do this. Like we, we need, this is important in the strategic, we need someone that's going to hand this off and leave a good taste in people's mouths. And like, because we can't do our job without that handoff happening. And it wasn't like a, you know, done deal. Like mm -hmm. we had to basically, you know, work, it had to be worked through. And I was in that, that space of it being worked through, but, but asked to do it a month, a month out. So as far as all my like preparation and stuff like that, like it, it's, I was like, what? Sure. You know, it was a, th a three IC and I'm like middle management and I'm like, okay. Um, and it all makes more sense now of like why, you know, why it all happened the way it did. And, and that's not to take away from someone's, it's not, I'm not going to, what if it, the fact is, is like, I was there right where I needed to be to make the biggest impact I did, or I could, and I did. And it wasn't uh, anyone telling me what to do as far as uh, like the command, like what do I do boss? It was like a, a reaction. Like I was sleeping in bed, like drinking myself, like, cause everyone just parties over there. It's just like, Oh, this, this place sucks. So the state department's just out there like, oh, this sucks. Let's have Vespers. Let's have cocktail hour, you know, and dress the nines and like impress people without like big words. And I'm like, great. Um, and then I got called, you know, a call, uh, a call from God um, at 7, 7, 10 a.m. And probably hung over as hell and uh, you know the, the I mean you went to Mali which is a permissive environment correct yeah I mean yeah we have freedom to maneuver up to the there's a there is a line where you don't you don't have like but you've got freedom of movement you can run around out in town yeah for sure in Bamako and like southern Mali yeah Right. And I have, I've like drove all over it. But once you get past like Mopti or into Mopti and then into like Timbuktu, mm -hmm. like that's a freaking place. And it's in, it's in Mali um, or Gao or it, it's like there, it, it, from the, the, the traditional like Toreg, like lighter skinned um, Malians that, you know, it's, they're almost like nomadic. You know, people that just kind of go and farm and, and but then, that, you know, with ISIS or excuse me, Al Qaeda um, blending in with them, they're able to, you know, from a skin tone, lighter skin, Arab, um, they're able to kind of intertwine. And then you build and this attack itself was. Have you ever been in an environment like that before? For um, work? Yeah, Colombia. 
Columbia? That was a Green Beret, yeah. Okay. Where, you know, the, the kidnap for ransom was a real thing. And, you know, in the, the peak of of those hostage, um, you know, either repatriations or, you know, I was a part of some of the, the you know, the, the efforts during 08, early 09, when I was down in Columbia, um, working through that stuff with the Colombian Lanceros and uh, Batallon de Commandos, like the Special Forces guys. Um, yeah. Well, let's walk through, because this was a big incident, and it's yeah, affected yeah. your life tremendously. So mm -hmm. you say it started at 7.10 in the morning on November 20th? Yeah. Let's start right there. Chronological order. Let's stay focused on this topic. And just mm -hmm. walk me through the entire day. Yeah, so... I, my, my day to day was, was going to the embassy, you know, and showing face or showing my, my face and talking through if there was a meeting, there was weekly and biweekly, um, you know, different DOD, uh, uh, briefs and stuff, but, um, there's no, there was no mission for me there. So I just kind of try to look for work and, you know, there's, um, there's some ranges and stuff, so I was able to like start at least. Hey, you guys want to train? Like, anybody want to train here? You know, and um, and just getting you know trying to get that going. And because I had on my kit, my kit stays in my ready kit bag, and you know I was able to. It's just like a Rolling Thunder or a North Face duffel roller, and it's got my basic go to war gear. You know, my helmet, guns. My rifle, my pistol, my body armor, uh, my panos, and uh, that's, you know, your basic, you know, assaulter uniform and stuff. And um, so I got a phone call that morning, uh, the day of the attack, and the phone call went something like this, where it was uh, the, the, someone at the agency, you know, wanted to call to notify me about an attack that they had been made aware of that was ongoing. And it was five to eight gunmen um, shooting up the play, shooting up the, the front of the hotel, the Radisson Blue, um, and Bamako Mali, and explosions, um, and that's what they and, and launched from what appeared to be embassy uh, driver or embassy um, vehicle vehicles, um, and that was the that was the situation report, right? And they called me twofold uh, to let me know. And then, but it's not like it was my job to really, I was the next door neighbor of the deputy and they were, they couldn't get a hold of them. So they're like, Hey, can you also go check on so-and-so? We can't get a hold of them. Can you help us out? And I was like, sure. My next phone call, as I'm grabbing my kit bag, I didn't have to do anything but grab it and take it to the front threw threw some pants on and uh, a t-shirt and was like, everything's in this bag. I know it is because I put it there. Um, it's where it needs to be when it needs to be, or it's it's there, you know. And I know that because I've drawn from it. I've it's going back to just you know any tools or resources that you have, like train with them, use them, and when you need them, they need to be there. And so I'm on the phone with the Marsoc dude that is the uh, like the closest thing to a warrior's that I even within a thousand mile radius, I don't know, 
uh, and I'm like, hey, you and you meet me at my house. I'm going to wake up so-and-so or check on him. I'll be out front. And um, they lived some like a mile away. And the deputy, or excuse me, the regional security officers, like the, the acting or the assistants, uh, Mike and um, uh, the other one, sorry for your name right now. Uh, they, we all, they all came together and, but when I'm knocking on the door of the, the, my next door neighbor, the deputy chief, uh, you know, he opens the door and he's on the phone in underwear and he's just like picking Lynn out of his belly button and he looks at me and he's like, oh, hold on, I'm on the phone. I'm like, no, hold on, there's the, the, the attacks going on, there's an attack going on right now and I, know, I don't know exactly where the hotel is, but I know it's close and I can hear gunfire. So I'm like, that's definitely close. And um, it was about three quarters of a mile or less from my house, which are like townhomes almost. Um, and he's like, I'm on the phone. Yeah, no, I got, I'm on the phone with some of our guys in the hotel right now, like staying there. Because a lot of temporary duty personnel like would stay there, whether it was our embassy or other Western embassies, like that's where they'd stay. Um, yeah. But certain locations and that's why the RSOs know, you know, they don't, they don't say, well, they do, they should. And if the assessments they do is, is, is this a, a place where we would put personnel that are on, you know, either permanent or temporary duty here um, as a, as a lodging place of lodging and they have to do these threat assessments. And to me, it made no sense why that hotel was even on there as a, as a, as a good place to stay when like looking at it, like the reason they chose that that hotel is not only for the density of like like people Westerners. If your mission was to just to kill as many Westerners as you can, you could throw a stone from across the street and, and hit the the front of the you know huge front glass door windows because it's a, it's a soft target in the sense that it doesn't have any standoff. It's not in depth. Yeah. Like they have all these security apparatuses and mechanisms, but like barrier, like from a vehicular assault or, but it doesn't stop people from, you know, drive by, driving by and, uh, and kill and, you know, reaching yeah. out and touch someone. But so it was well, you very, know this though, Kyle, I mean, you're talking about agency personnel, state department personnel, mm -hmm. ambassador types. They don't give a fuck about security. Yeah. All they give a fuck about is well, a nice place to sleep with yeah, a bar. Nice pool. Really nice. And a pool. pool. Yeah. Badass pool. Um and that shit's Ignorance is bliss. I've seen it in every country I've ever deployed in. Yeah. <clears throat> so he tells me, yeah, you know, it's, it's like it's their uh, some of their TDY guys that were there to train whomever and these are like i met them the, like the day before they're like mac p song like old old hard crusty mfers man and they're in there not again you know like but i but he, he not again man and uh he tells me he's like yeah he just kind of gives me the and i'm like hey man like give me their room numbers their cell phone numbers like he's like why he's like because i'm gonna go get them and he goes, like, record stops. Like, Err. what do you mean? You, you do that? I'm like, yeah, I'm going there right now. Yeah, motherfucker, there are Americans That's a there. start point. For me, I was like, 
Thank you. Please. Jeez. Now I have room a uh, room number, cell phones, and now I can get on the horn with them while I'm maneuvering en route, absorbing everything as it's happening and processing to come up with a, a plan of action to execute. And um, I'm not pausing to do it, not like taking knee facing out and like, like it's it's happening real time. And it 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 really like resonated with me looking back now. I'm like. What did you think I was going to do? Like, why did you even like ask me that question? But it goes back to you just don't understand, like the mindset piece of yeah, like right place, right time, right person. But it's also a matter of like, why aren't you doing something about it? Like, what are you going to do? Ah, fuck it. I just I ain't got time for that. So it was like, I'm going to go do something, and um. You know, I, I was able to convince him to give me those numbers and room, room numbers and stuff. And as I'm moving, manu- like moving to the hotel, like drove, we kind of drove around and got into the the front instead of driving right past it. Kind of leapfrogged around, uh, dismounted, and then kind of walked up, patrolled up. What are you? Absorbing. What are you carrying? What are you wearing? My, it, uh, I had my just a t-shirt on, the, the civilian t-shirt, and like prana because they're stretchy. Pants. Nice. Sometimes men wear stretchy pants. Um, it's a Nacho Libre reference. But, um, and then just like some shit kickers, dude. And like, good thing they were pretty sturdy. Plates, helmet. Yeah, so like it, my regular like JPC with plates, helmet, uh, HK416 with my normal accoutrement, you know. And then uh, my Surfire RC2 suppressor and stuff like, and then my Panos. Um, and, but no more, like I didn't have breaching tools. I didn't have like bangs or I didn't have um, all the extra little bits of kit that would have been really nice to have. Um, but, uh, so as I'm coming up, like I'm, the RSOs and like, now he's talking with the ambassador and then the other RSO gets called by MSG or the post one. And they're like, Hey, you know, this guy's, uh, this one American just like called and said that he's trapped in a room on fire and he's hiding under one of the banquet tables and they're shooting over top of him. Please come get me, come help me. Um, so between those two calls, I'm, there's a lot of, a lot of noise and I'm like, just filter through this. Like which one is the most life that one. So threat to life. I'm like, let's focus on this one real quick. Let's get the information. All right. He's going to, I made the determination like, Hey, Mike, you know where this room is. It's the banquet room, breakfast room. Um, if I lead, like, can you help kind of point me in the directions I need to go? Um, and he knew he, they had the ground knowledge of the, the inside of the hotel. Um, somewhat. And I was like, What's right, going on when go. you're in there? I'm, I mean, is I, fire just I going? I haven't got in yet. Right now, I'm still. So the RSO is like, well, hold on. Like, we got to talk to the ambassador. I'm like, you're already talking to him. But what? We're going in to get this Terry, uh, the American, the first American um, in that room, the banquet room, because it was on fire and they were imminent life threat, right? It's threat to life of Americans. I was like. All right, that's a that's now the the pressing start point for me. 
Um, and the fact that they knew I wasn't going to go through the front doors, they shot the whole fucking place up, like going in. And, um, and they chased a bulk of the people into the breakfast room. And that's where they ended up focusing their attention to get, to get the most Kills. from the timing. Right. So like seven ten in the morning, that's breakfast time to the time I entered, it was about seven forty-five. but I entered through a side door. I had to basically like break into a side entrance service entrance or whatever, and then work my way through all these, uh, like, um, conference area, you know, big, huge rooms on the, like the outer perimeter of the building or of the hotel. And I was able to, Oh, that opened up into the main foyer where it was like, if you think about embassy suites where it's like an atrium where almost three sided atrium with floors all the way, you know, it was like seven stories and, you go into the atrium and it's like two spiral glass staircases kind of going all the way up on each side. It's like super exposed. And I just, and it's just like the most like overly stimulating snapshot I'd have ever taken because I, I was absorbing all of it out front and like everywhere around me because every corner I was the guy up front, every, like everything was, was sensory overload. And it was, the smells, the the sounds, the, the fire alarms, the smoke, the haze, the smells of death um, in Western dress. It was something that I just, my brain was like, what? It was like short-circuiting a little bit because I, I hadn't, I had, I, had, I had become so desensitized to, to, to life and death, but in, you know, in certain environments, you know, in certain dress. And that's just, I think that's a part of a, like a self-defense mechanism. But this, my, for one, I didn't get a chance to prepare my mind, body, or spirit for violence, which is like planning, uh, contingencies and rehearsals. And you do that with each other and a team and uh, a troop. And, and then you go out and do these things and, and they're like incredible, but you buy down risk with, with a collective experience and rehearsed like, plans of action that you just in place in the unknown. Right. And it's, uh, it, I was just in reactive mode and, um, I was fully exposed, you know, my mind, body and spirit was, and, uh, it was just awful to see. And to, how many to, bodies were you seeing? I mean, how many people were well, killed? Well, a, a couple the one, uh, first, the few, first few, um, were just kind of like, sporadic in the Fourier area. And then... Did you know any of them? No, no. Um, no, they killed 23 people total, um, Westerners, uh, to include one American citizen, Anita Datar was her name. And I know that name, and I'll never forget it, her face, and uh, because... She was the last one, like, and I, last one I needed to get confirmation on, like, I went back to her room probably five times that, that whole day and cleared it again and again. And, um, and then I was able to confirm that she was one of the killed during the initial, but yeah, it was, um, it was awful. She was in the, um, like the blind leading the blind. Like into like they chased them through the breakfast room people, and then they set the that room on fire, 
and then just were stacking furniture. They were trying to burn the place down. And then they chased them, everyone through the kitchen. And that's where Terry got left behind, the American that was in that room that I, like they had didn't, they had set on fire and he wouldn't move. He was just like froze in that, wherever he was in that room. But I kicked the doors in to that room. And I mean, it, like even making it to that floor to get there was this big, I was like, you cover 10 to two, you 10 to two, like anyone. I'm like fucking pull security and cover me while I move. Cause I'm about to make a, a real big movement. Cause I had to run out and get on this spiral glass staircase and just mad dash it like to get up to the second floor to hold up and then bring them up. And then I went in and just went right into kicking these French doors in. And it was like a cloud. The whole room was full of just fire and smoke. And I just ran in there and it fucking floored me. Cause I was like, well, I can't breathe. Imagine that. But like this mindset of like, it's a self-correcting problem, man. But like, it just kept getting lower and lower to the point where now I'm on my belly, like with my gun, like low crawling, gun light, yelling his name. And I'm like, wait a minute. Hey, first of all, no one's, no one's coming. I can't see any further. And I'm, now I don't know which way is the fucking door I just came from because I can't see. So I was able to like crawl the fuck back out. And then Holy I was shit. like, this isn't, this isn't working. And I was like, get him on the phone like direct because he was taught they were talking through a cutout through the msg the marine security guards at post one and then relaying to us i'm like fuck all that like we got him on the phone direct and then by that point because i went and did a bunch of one of the lessons learned that i changed the way we train or what had a part in that was communicating the fact that hostage rescue hell yeah we're great at it but let's what about in a fire environment so we started training with rescue one two three four and five up in new york they have why, and they're really good at like manipulating a fire, you know, to that it's going to make it worse over time. But for that minute or two, it lifts and you can see further and they can go in and grab somebody. And they've been doing it for a long time. So between that and forcible entry is something we, I changed the way we train. And uh, I was able to, you know, pull him at that point, I was able to, for one, like know which direction he was because a huge room and then it lifted enough to where I was able to get deep into there and then like just pull him out by the like he I, he just looked like death man like he had talked to death and he said no nah, hold up and I carried like carried him out you know and loaded him up and uh in a car like we did that's where the it was integral for having like the RSO and the relationships they have because they were working the embassy like drivers and stuff like shuttles basically going back to a safe, a safe area away from this fucking hotel. And, um, you know, while this is all happening, you know, people are, the embassy's giving me, you know, the, there was some people at the embassy that were, they knew what I was like capable of doing and, and they, they weren't questioning it. They were just like, what do you need? And same with my command and in, in, in Germany at the time, like, it was like, all right, got it. Kyle, what do you need? I'm like, stand by. I'll let you know what I got. And then eventually it was like, I need my fucking boys. I can't do this alone. And that empowerment, that 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 trust is like it was it allowed me to be effective, to be agile, to make decisions on the ground. And 
what I talk about is tomorrow problems. Like I watched happen where the Marsoc cats were, were just being told, called every five minutes, man, on their cell phones. Like, what are you guys doing? Like, you shouldn't be in there. You're going to get in trouble. Like, you're going to ruin the, the platform for our source operations. And I'm like, hang the fucking phone up right now. I'm like, tell that motherfucker that's a tomorrow problem. And I need you here right now. Because what they're doing and what they did was cast seeds of doubt into any of the decisions that they were making. And if all those decisions were resting on the fact that they trusted me, and I wasn't in their command, but the moment someone from their command, 12 hours away, mind you, yeah. says, well, you guys shouldn't be seen running around in full body armor. That's kind of like, oh, you're going to ruin this platform. I'm like, first of all, you can go fuck yourself. Second of all, that's tomorrow problem. You, you, we'll deal with it. But there's lives like that can still be saved. Like, where, where the fuck? What planet are you in or on? You know. But they, they just casting those seeds and planting seeds into yeah. somebody that I needed to be switched, stay switched on and and with me, like with me in this moment. And as much as I tried to like say fuck that, we'll deal with that later. Started stepping for like steps and steps become an arm's distance away become. So then I was just like, holy fuck. I feel like I'm like flat out alone in here. Even though you're moving with me, you're not where you're not here. You're not with you. You're too far behind. And then here, check right the fuck out. Um, now mind you, I wouldn't have been able to, to do it in the manner that I did it without them. So I just, it really bothers me that younger, I didn't realize the impression that I was having on, on so many people by just a, a, taking action and looking. They, they wanted to do these things, but they needed someone like me to just take lead and like form this motley crew of a team, you know, to do something. And um, I think like... And the whole team, like the country team, kind of really came together and, and they were like, well, how do we get accountability of all these people? Who who do we have? Who's un, who's unaccounted for American-wise? It, it really, like, challenged them and they did a, a pretty good job of, like, filtering and, and pushing that information and getting it to me it, it pretty rapidly. And and I was able to form a, li a, a list where... I have, which I wanted to show you, but um, I started forming a list on just some scratch paper I found on the ground because I didn't have a pen and paper on me, like a good soldier. I had everything else, <laughs> but I just found a piece of paper and I, can you hand me that bag? I do want to show you this because it's important. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I grabbed a, a scratch piece of paper from the street <laughs> And then, like, started, um, you know, writing down, like, um, names and room numbers in my excellent handwriting. And uh, somehow it survived, like, it's, like, super barely hanging on, you know, but this is the list that I started to form. And it started to kind of, you know, these are room numbers and names of Americans that like, they were unaccounted for. And I, um, you can see that... Anita Dattara was, was on that list pretty early. And um, I was able to get to her room pretty quick, but she wasn't there. And then 
Over what the are the scratch names off? Scratch. After I, I rescued him. Um, like going to the room and confirming that they are that person. And I think I kicked in like 54 hotel doors, man. No shit. Yeah, it was like, um, I, you know, the master key right here. I'll give the seals that, man. That whole, like, uh, mule kick, that's where it's at. Works. It does. It saves so much energy. And it was, like, comical watching people trying to, even with breaching tools, I was like, what are you doing? What is that thing? The French, when they came, I was like, um, I'm like, step aside, please. <laughs> I got really tired. <laughs> but um, I got a heavy foot, man. I don't know. But uh, plus, it's all about, like, you can waste a lot of energy not knowing how to, like, attack a locking mechanism or what's the, a, breach, a breach, right? If you don't know how to defeat the, the weakest point or the strongest point or the weakest point that you can defeat um, and obtain a breach. Either way. Um, so the list, like, I, I obviously went and got Terry out of the first room, and then I started getting you know, the, 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 the names and, and room numbers. And I looked at the floor. Now I'm outside of the hotel after the first time I went in and I look at this and people are like hanging out. They're outside on their balconies, just like, you know, guests in the hotel. I don't know. They're, they could be from whatever countries, but, um, some of them are like tying bed sheets together on like the sixth floor. Like this, my man had like three sheets tied together and he had a good 30, 40 feet of just drop before yeah. it didn't even touch the ground and i was like first of all don't do that i'm like i'm like hand and arm you know because i don't know if you're gonna like I, I said in english but i don't speak french and who knows if uh, you know what languages they they understood or spoke but the pointy you know like me saying no you know and then having people like relay it but i'm like don't do that for one that's not gonna hold up and uh and I was like, just barricade yourself in your room and don't answer the door for anyone, period. And um, we're going to give them, like, reassurances while I'm like, how the fuck am I going to deal with this? <laughs> like, it, it's a lot. And, yeah. um, and I was looking at the room numbers, and, like, the highest floor was on the seventh. The set, there was a bank of three rooms that were remotely close to each other on the seventh floor. So when I went back in, I was like, all right. I looked at the lower floor that I already cleared came went back the same way and then it was like all right if i find the closest stairwell to this bank of rooms i'm just gonna go right up this stairwell because there wasn't no outside there wasn't an outside fire escape or roof access because i wanted to get down and work my way from the top down but I, I did a whole sweep around the whole hotel and there was no fire escapes so i was like i guess i'm going i didn't want to go up the spiral staircase so i went to like the fire the fire uh, stairwell, fire red stairwells, and went to the lower floor. Like, so if it was seven, three, one, you know, two, six, and, and one, eight, I, I went to the stairwell that was going to get me closest to it when I popped out on that floor, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I did that. And then when I got to the seventh floor, I couldn't get in the door from the inside because it was a, a crash bar, you know, emergency exit. So I didn't have the tool or anything to like pop it from the inside. So I actually went down a couple floors and then went over. And then that led me into this 
like outside area of the hotel. But it, to me, I was just still in the hotel. But at that point, I had went around to the backside of it where uh, I went up that stairwell. And this whole wing of the hotel wasn't even on. It was like additions that they made. And it wasn't even on like the emergency exit plan or anything like and which I took with me for to capture that how fucked up this hotel was for one. Like this is what you have briefing on the wall here. Like there's parts of the hotel that aren't even on this, like additions, the whole wings. And um just so chaotic. And uh as I'm going up that other stairwell in between the third and fourth floor is when uh like I'm about here in the clearance uh, on the stairs, and you know, like running upstairs, and then like trying to clear, and then the 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 gunmen are like coming down the stairs, and they're on the landing, and then we 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 like lock eyes, and I stare down his muzzle from five feet away, like the, that and, close. Yeah, yeah, he's like right here, and I just go, well, oh, fuck, and but I look through his like beyond the muzzle. And into his eyes, and I and I, I was like, I saw a change in his his demeanor. I saw a shift because he was not expecting to see me. Big American flag, panos on my head. He's like, holy shit! Without saying it. Um. And this is all like very rapidly. And, but the next thing through my mind was, well, that's me. I'm fucking dead. And uh, he cracks the first round off and I black out for a split second. I mean, I got knocked out. Like, I thought I was in heaven or hell. And I, and I just, like, it's all like a fog and haze. But, like, I'm, like, stumbling down the stairs. And it's, like, almost like things are moving in slow motion. And I'm like shooting, shooting back. And, and, uh, he shoots like five more times and they all hit like just in this concrete stairwell right around, like pop, 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 like right, like, like Samuel Jackson, man, Pulp Fiction. And so for, for me, the divine intervention piece, like I just couldn't see it for what it was. And, uh, I just, I just saw red. And I, I went running back up the stairs and yelled, and I actually cussed him out, called him a bunch of basic-ass bitches. And I don't know where that came from, but I screamed it at the top of my lungs. And then he yells out Akbar at me and fucking pops the primer on a, on a grenade. And I hear that. It's very audible. You know, time delay, pop, like a Russian-style grenade, the pineapple-looking one. And I've heard it a ton in Afghanistan, and I know, so I was able to yell grenade and get out of the way, relative cover. And uh, and that thing just bopped the fucking shit out of me. And somehow I, I was still, there was moments of, of blacking out right there for a second, or not, like, unconsciousness. But then coming back to, and it's just, I could, my like, my teeth were just fucking, like, loose and dangling, you know, and, but I was just, I was just, you know, just holding them in place. Because I was like, I'm the only, only person that could stop these motherfuckers right now. And, uh, you know, when they threw, they threw another grenade on me, I was like, fuck. I can't, 
I don't have I don't have what I need to deal with like to to deal with this. I can't. They have the position of tactical advantage in this stairwell, and uh, so I just like I just started going straight up. I was like, go get any Malian security forces that you can find now and get them up here. And I said that very calmly just now. I was yelling it. And, uh, you know, basically whoever they could muster up there, I was like, I was just going up and down the line. Like, this is your fucking country. These motherfuckers are right here. I was just going straight up patent speech on them. Like, and I was like, you, get a fucking shield. They don't speak English. And I'm just like English fucking screaming. And like, they're, they're like, we, 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 we. I'm like, uh, you understand this, you know? And I was just so fucking, for one, I was like, I was hurting. And I, I, I was using, like, I couldn't, I couldn't stop. So I just used overwhelming violence of action to, to to mask any of that, any of the pain I was feeling right in that moment. And this is in hindsight, but I was able to like, you know, you, you take this shield and go over there. And I basically like hand, like place this dude. I'm like, go over there. And in, and like, he got to the base of the stairwell and like, <laughs> they took one shot, popped the shield from up here and he drops it and takes it to the house. He's like, I served my country. See you later. Like he was gone. And this was a Mali and, uh, all right, next, you know, like, get the fuck over here. And then this guy shows up with a gas mask on his head and a pistol. And he's like, I got you. He didn't say that, but he gave me the look. And I was like, all right, don't let them fucking move. And then I cleared the rest of that wing, you know, kicking in every door I could and freeing not just Americans, but anyone at that point. I'm like, this is now, I've locked them into a position. They couldn't go any, like, higher because it was a condo that they they were trying to find what I found out later they had some pocket litter they were sterile like they didn't have like comps they had comps but they they were burner phones and like they had some pocket litter um that had the uh, room numbers of like in the six series like 600 whatever a bank and that was where the Air France crew was staying so like they flew Air France would fly in daily there so their flight crews would stay in a certain wing every time and they were trying to get over just like i was to the certain wing or bank of rooms and you know our 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 paths crossed very early in this process and that and they were no longer able to it went from you know killing and making as much of a impact as they they wanted to or could to survival and barricading themselves and um so they didn't kill another innocent person once they met me in that stairwell. It just took them, it took, you know, the rest of the day for, for me to clear through. And then uh, uh, the uh, French came from the assault force from Burkina Faso, the neighboring country. And one of my old teammates that was embedded with them, helping them, you know, uh, target and do things. And he hopped on a bird with them. It was like, 12 of them and but when they showed up at, it was like almost 1 p.m holy like, i ran shit. into the stairwell with them at like it's like six hours later yeah it was like it was like eight something when when i when i encountered them 
in that stairwell in uh, 8, 8, 30 a.m.? No, 7.45. Probably 8.45. Something like an hour from getting Terry out of there. Or less. I don't know. But the... My whole point was when I, like, I kicked in one door in that in that wing, and there was a there was a a dude in Western dress just like with his shot right through his head, like, and I was like, look back at the door. I was like, there are holes in the door. Like, how the fuck did he get hit? And after I cleared the room, I was like, there's no one in here. And um, I, yeah, because when I kicked it in, like the 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 deadbolt and the throw latch both broke off the door. So like I. I cleared all of it, right? And cleared it out of the, the, the door frame. And I was like, it really like bothered me, not just the fact that he was like obviously, you know, one of the killed one one of the West one of the people that were killed, innocent the people that were killed, but like even in that, like from a I was like, this doesn't make sense. Like why, you know, from a physics perspective, I was like, wait yeah. a minute. And I I found out, you know, because I went back with the FBI almost in an unhealthy manner of times to do my own sensitive site exploitation, but really trying to make sense of it all. We put a suit on and went back in there like every day for days and days. And I didn't know how much, how many times I'd get a chance to go back in there, if at all. Um, but they, they were knocking on doors and then if anyone that would answer their door, they would just like, even just through the people, not people, but the, the throw latch still engaged the hotel, right? So it like shuts in itself. And once you let it go, I mean, they would knock lightly in this one guy. He answered the door, but just stuck his head, you know, through the crack. He he was like looking through the crack and they just smoked him right there through the through the, the crack in the door. Think they didn't have a fucking chance, man. Damn. And um and But I do know that um, it was the most exposed I've ever felt, like for a long, a long time. And then when that that troop came from the Burkina Faso, like I finally was just like, "All right, let's fucking go!" Like, and I was like, "Hey." Here's the deal. Like I went over there and was like to the, the commander. I'm like, who's the fucking charge here? Who's in charge here? I'm like, here's the thing. Like they're right here. We got them. I can pin down. Like I can take you right to it. And um, they're like, oh, okay, okay. Um, I'm like, okay, okay, let's go. And uh, I was pretty amped still. And like, because they're still in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Still barricaded in the same room. It was a. Uh, it was like a storage closet. So if you think about the landing opened into, a, there was a door that opened into the, um, the condo, that metal door. And then to the left of that on the landing was like a storage closet, like two, two storage closet deep. They didn't have much room, but man, they were there. They had like tied up all their bandoliers and were loading mags while one of them was shooting and single shot. Like they were there to stay. And die there, um, and uh, like there was no way of flanking yeah. know, them at, the, at that point. At least not from my perspective. Like there, none of no, there was no direct way of flanking without having some sort of climbing ability or you know coming in from the roof. So 
um, also just taking a step back, you know, and, and having to like spread that out with, you know, with the French, like to be able to problem solve, which it was awesome. Like, and I think this is like really f- ironic or funny, but they were like, oh yeah, you come with us, but just stay in the back. I'm like, Roger that. I've been up front all fucking day. I'll stay in the back of you, with you boys. Let's go. And, uh, and then I'm like, you know, doing all that. What's going on? It's, it's taking so long. Like, it's all this commotion up front. And I'm, you know, now I'm like, there's no, they shouldn't be, like, there's gunshots. And I'm like, who the fuck are they you know, fighting with right now? And uh, it was one of the Malian, like, security force dudes, like, shot one of the fucking French, like, in the top of his helmet. I was more afraid of like, once I, I went in first, like I, it was like me against the fucking shooters. And then after that, it was like giving people permission to go in and anyone and everyone, like whomever, and with a gun. Yeah. And it's like, that was scary as shit. Like, I was like, how do you, you know, filter through? Like, I, I can, you know, discriminate a threat and a, a friendly um, but that's difficult, even through the haze and the, the fog, you know, and yeah, like it, it, they, they shot one of the French right in, in the top of his fucking helmet and the, he walking wounded, you know, bleeding, but we were able to package him up, get him out of there. And then next thing you know, like now they're down in the Salter and they're like, Oh, you guys want to intermingle in the teams now? And I'm like, Roger that. And, uh, I just kept getting further Then then I'm like, like in the team, team, um, just flowing with them. And, and that's, that's a testament to like the ability to, to not be so like indoctrinated in, in, and to just, it took me two rooms to, to, uh, to kind of like adapt to their techniques and not get in the way. Cause at that point it's like, I could sure, I could like fall on my sword here. You guys are doing this all fucking wrong if I wanted, but not that they were. I, I was just extremely grateful to be a part of any sort of like competent assault force when my boys were like, they were getting spun up in North Carolina and the guys in Germany were like loading in a C-130, like, but th- they were 10, 12 hours away, 18 hours away. Like, so, you know, to have, to have them there and, and, you know, just, just to uh, like see and, and, bear witness to, to, to pure evil and, you know, and, and people just following like the, like uh, the American that was killed was, was in a service elevator area that if they, a group of them, like 15 of them, like if they would have just kept going, went right, like a turn and then freedom down a hallway, exit freedom. They went through that kitchen into this service elevator and there's bodies in the elevator in, in between the doors, like closed on them. And then outside of it, this all executed from like point blank range. Damn. Like in the, in the head, face. And you can't unsee that. The smell. And they didn't have a fucking chance. So people ask me, they're like, well, even the ambassador, he's like, why did you, Kyle, you're an American hero. Like, why did you react that way? 
I'm like, well, sir, I was like, you got a minute? Like, if anyone should have reacted that way, it's someone that's been trained in this for, since, like, hostage rescue and, and, like, it's my, I have the ability, so it was my responsibility to act. Like, I'm not going to just sit here and fucking hope and dream and, and like, I'm going to do something. And by doing something, the impact of that, now, mind you, the impact that it's had on me as a person, I, I can't, I'm only starting to heal from. And uh, the, my family, I gave it all. I died in that stairwell. And I, I, I couldn't. I just maintained being, my priority was to, well, no, I have the ability, right? So it's my responsibility. So like everyone, I stayed in that country for almost four months by myself. No one came and checked on me. All these embassy folks were having like these crisis response teams come in and like medic doctors and fucking psychs and stuff come in and do these evaluations. I was like, oh, those are cool. What's going on over there? Like, that seems cool. All right, I'll be over here just fucking licking a window, you know, like pulling security, facing out. And, uh, like, I was, I was hurting so bad. And I couldn't, I didn't know what that, like, how, I didn't, I couldn't really put word to, like, what I was feeling. You know, fear and, but anger is easy to mask that. So I was just really angry. And I remember, I don't remember this, but I called my wife that night when I got back to the, the room, my room by myself, fucking deathly afraid. And I just started boozing to numb it. And I just remember, like, she said I called, was just like bawling. I was just like bawling and she just was asking me, like, oh my God, Kyle, what's wrong, what's wrong? Like, and then she started getting, I remember, I remember this because it was like, to me, it was like a point where I was like, you can't help me. So I pushed her further away because she was like, oh, my God, what's wrong? It was like hysteria. And I was like, you can't help me. And what I really needed and wanted was to hold her and to hug her and to hug her children. But I couldn't. And no one, no one came and saved me from me. And everyone relied on me to be the savior. If, if something were to happen again, they were like, oh, let's just rally at Kyle's house. He'll figure it out. And I'm like, yeah, I'll figure it the fuck out, man. And I'm just fucking losing myself completely, trying to make sense of the physical wounds the, to my brain and the psychological and emotional. And, and I was like, this, this is all too much. So I just, I drank. And I, I need, I, I seeked comfort in, in an extramarital affair. Cause those are the two things that were super comforting. And I cope, I coped with those. And that only kept me just barely afloat and kept me from, had I not done those two things and they both fed into just more misery, but I don't think I would have made it back. I just wanted to fucking destroy myself and everything around me. 
And it's not about one specific event. That was the catalyst that unlocked so much other trauma in my life from my first visual memory being traumatic. And it's just like, that's when things started to become unmanageable in my life. How did that day end? When they got to the barricade? We, uh, I mean, we got, we killed them eventually at like, we had to, we ended up like bounding around and coming in through like a rooftop thing and then crawling down into this condo and locking them down from underneath and then below. And I mean, I think the French threw everything they had, like flashbang and like concussive grenades, but it was just flying right past them. And they had this corridor where they could just like, just spray down this hallway and then they had the stairwell. So they had them locked down. And um, so we couldn't come up from underneath. Like we had the, the dude that was, the French dude that was holding the shield guy. That was his job. I mean, you're the fucking shield dude. And I was like, and he was like this young, very 20 something year old kid. And I know, and I, that, I remember this because like he got shot, I think through his, like broke his hand and then maybe got like shot through his, like the, the superficial part of his arm or whatever. So bandaged him up. But I was like, he got within a foot of this corner where the barricaded guys were in this storage closet just to get close enough, but took, took like seven rounds in this fucking shield from a foot away and was fucking, was balling after that. And the guys weren't dead. They threw in because the guy behind him was able to get close enough to throw an, uh, on an actual like offensive like frag grenade on top of these cats, which was this huge faux pas of like you don't bring frags on a hostage rescue man. And I'm like, well, what about in this case? So I know that we came back and I was able to train. I came back and was able to like bring the tactical lessons learned to change the way we think and train. I mean that's my legacy there. It's not like to make an impact on that type of organization, I think is, is massive. And, and it's not like, oh, look, look at me. It's just like we evolve as a fighting force and that's why it's so, so capable, but as a collective. Um, but like even the, the grenade, like right on top of this, the, these cats, like we had to go in there, like rush up, ran upstairs and we like finish these guys off. Cause they're like fucking, you know, they're like zombies coming out of the shit. But I ate a lot of like overpressure, and I, I guess I just never realized how much that impacted was impacting me, like because I didn't have a physical frag or bullet hole, like those the those like the wounds you can't see that 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 saying you know, and I'm like. It makes so much sense now, like because it changes so much about your. It changes the, your character. Like everything be, be, that used to be easier becomes more difficult, and cognitive processing and function. But we were able to clear those guys out, or kill them, and then that we. I still stayed in the hotel for another three hours, clearing the rest of the hotel, like room by room. Yeah. And. And I didn't, I didn't say it was like 6, 6 PM when I called, you know, objective secure one, one cat, one American killed 
confirm, you know, her body because I got a, um, a a physical description from the from the country team, and she was one. Um, Anita Dattar was one of the ones that were initially killed in that uh, ster- service elevator area. But and I went back to the embassy, still like my pistol belt on, and just like like just like. Like, still got fucking shit all over me, like, gunpowder and stuff. And uh, the country team's there just, like, waiting for me to brief them, all circled up. And I'm like, what's up? Like, tell us all about it. I'm like, I'm like, okay. And people just looked at me differently after that, you know? And I was like, what the fuck did you think this was? Did you think this, why, oh, you're worried now your kids? Why the fuck are your kids here? Like, if there's an opera, Delta Force operators here, you think this is a good country? There's not very many of us. My operator number is 965 since 1978. That's not me bragging. That's me just to conceptualize how small we are. I was one of less than a thousand still. And the, the, it just blew my mind. They're like, what are we gonna get our, what are we gonna do about our kids? And I'm like, get them the fuck out of this country. Like, I got it. It's just not where it is. Like, we, I know we wanna spread our free democracy everywhere, but in due time, this one hasn't baked enough. It needs to go back in the oven. Yeah. And it's like, it's just like the ignorance piece of it and then masking it with like, like the, the, as you know, like the partying and like the social aspects of it, and not give me don't get me wrong. There's great missions that the State Department's doing and spreading, you know, and um, and truly like like helping others. I'm just like, why did this catch you guys like with your pants down? Um, yeah. You want to take a break? Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. Thank you for listening to The Sean Ryan Show. If you haven't already, please take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave The Sean Ryan Show a review. We read every review that comes through, and we really appreciate the support. Thank you. Let's get back to the show. All right, Kyle, we got, you took pictures in the days after this happened, and uh, you got them here, so... Let's go through some of these. So this is where they were barricaded, correct? Yeah. Yep. So the storage closet, uh, it was like two-room storage closet that was, if you were to, you know, button hook around to the right of this doorway, um, that's where they were held up at. And that's where they were you know, tied the bandoliers. They were in this room. If you were to go right okay. in, into this and then button hook around, there was a... a um, storage type closet room, you know, uh, maintenance stuff or whatever was in it, but it didn't go anywhere else. It, 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 there was no escape from that. Um, so, and that door was closed, right? So, um, that door to me, once we were able to open it from the other side signifies like an end to a door that was, they closed, you know, and we opened it 
and that's where you know the, the shield guy was able to get close enough to to be able to drop a, a grenade on top of them in that landing um just to just to disorient them enough to to finish them off and you know the door itself it, 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 it's a symbol to me of just carnage and 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 a of an end to what I didn't think was gonna gonna end. You have a picture of that door too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that door is like I took it from the hotel and and turned it into a beer pong table for the rest of that trip. Are and you then, serious? Yeah, it makes for a gnarly beer pong table with all the the gunshot, like the ricochet, like the <laughs> yeah. There was nothing else to do, man. Yeah. I, I wanted anything and everything to, to, to just get your mind off it. Mm. And using my own like bravado or like that operator macho, like, yeah, it's a facade. Like, cause underneath it was this scared little boy that just wanted someone to hold his hand and say, Hey man, it's okay to not be okay. And obviously looking back, I can say that, but Going through it was like I wanted to make sense of it, and because I didn't believe in things I couldn't see, and the things I saw I couldn't believe, and that's why like looking at the the stairwell, the stairwell like coming up, like as I'm walking up the stairs, like this is my or that's his perspective, that perspective looking down, and that's me looking up, but you can see there's like a. And I'll give you the photo, but there's a small ricochet in between our fields of view. And that's what's depicted on my arm. That same little ricochet is there too. And it, this is a scene from like, I'm still building it, but it's like a ghost. Me running up and then kind of fading into the, the darkness. Damn. And so he was up and you were... You're looking up at him. Mm -hmm. yeah, Literally. So you're not on only the, going, the flight of stairs is like this. You're here pointing up. Yeah, so he's I'm going down. up. Then there's the, a small landing, and then it went up. And then we we caught each other, like, right here. So he's got the angle and the high ground. And I'm, like, here and trying to sweep back as I'm, like, running upstairs. And this is where, like, not having your mates, like, close enough to you, like... Yeah, there's a lot of things that ate, ate me up. Like there's like a few shots that I know I took that I can't account for, and I I just let that consume me. Because what if I, what if I killed somebody that didn't that didn't intend? And I let that, dis like destroy my my. I'm better than that. I'm better than that. So then it would just and then I would just, like start. Like these negative self talk like stuff, and I'm just a shitty. Operator, I'm a shitty person, I'm a shitty father, I'm a shitty husband. Well, what do shitty people do? Shitty things. I'm gonna do shitty stuff, but but hide it, you know? So, and a lot of this I wanted, like I talk about that phone call with my wife and how I feel like she, it did, she didn't have a chance. She didn't have a chance, it wasn't, it wasn't fair. She didn't have a chance to, to for one, why, why is it on her to give me something I need? Like, I need to be held, comforted, told it's okay. 
you're going to be okay without her knowing that. You know, that's like an expectation and an unfair one where she's not in a position. Have I, and have I ever opened up, up to that point? Like, hey, I'm actually afraid. I'm scared to death right now. And I just want you to tell me, like, that it's going to be okay. And I didn't have a, a, a trust. I couldn't trust in any other human being from my first visual memory. Like, because if I wasn't in control, I got hurt. And I damn sure wanted to believe and trust in God. But if I can't trust in other humans, like, I saw it the other way. I was like, I can't truly believe in something I can't see. But I never lost sight of there being something out there bigger than me. As much as I used confidence or arrogance or, or like that, the, the, the mask to compensate or to mask, you know, how I really felt. Like I was vulnerable and exposed. And I was like, oh shit. It's like the the Oz, you know, like they're the guy behind the the thing is just like a it's just a dude, you know. Yeah. Oz is just a fucking dude. Where's the Oz? Just a dude, and it's like, you mean I'm just a dude? Like behind all this boyish good looks and and charm, I'm not only am I just a dude, I'm a human being, man. And forgiving myself for all the things that. I had no control of that I didn't need to be like forgive myself for as a, from my childhood. And not until I like was able to like he without sin cast the first stone. I mean, that's been something I've hung on to even in the, the, the darkest days where I've been like, like it would manifest itself in self harm, self Love, uh, self, like hate, um, sabotage in my own personal life because, it, you know what? I was like, I don't, I'm, I don't know how to make sense of what I've been through my whole life, and it's just been I've seen chaos and pure evil at its fucking closest. So I believe that that's that's just what I need, and in order for me to defeat evil, I got to be more evil. So it started getting taking this twisted form of like my service was was to feed into my ego because my ego was my sense of self. And once that became exposed through, you know, getting arrested beyond this and and a couple times and it's you can't hide. It's like, oh, imposter. And but then it was all about like, well, perceptions, like I'm going to abstain from alcohol or go to this treatment center because my what my goal was to be the best operator I could be and team leader eventually in that unit. And I even asked like, psycho I've been in talk therapy for six years. I've done about I don't know, three neck shots, the Stanley Gate blocks. I've done uh, intensive inpatient uh, therapy for combat-related stress and, and substance abuse. I've done the Army substance abuse programs. Always for someone else, though, and never for myself. Um, not only, like, not until I could 
Oh, not until I truly saw myself from the outside, from, from an out-of-body experience where I... You had an out-of-body experience? Yeah. When was that? October of last year. What was that like? What'd you see? I saw just the ugliness. I saw, I saw me for not what I thought I was, but like, like who I was. What were you doing when that happened? I, I was driving back from Texas and I had my daughter with me and I was doing internships in, out in Austin and I was like, I gotta make it back there was something I had to make it back for and I was trying to rebuild my relationship with my wife and this was the third attempt and we started dating and I was, I was spiraling, man. And I was running towards the only thing that I've ever had that's been stable and never lost sight of me, the, the, the pure, kind, loving person. And that's my wife. And I had my oldest daughter with me and I went to the bathroom and took a bump of cocaine, what I thought was cocaine. And I'm sitting in the driver's seat, just got gas, like started sweating. And then I look, I look over at her and I'm like, I don't feel so good. Can you drive this next hour or so? And then I, I just like, That's when I could see myself. I, I was I, I almost died from fentanyl overdose. Damn, man. And they had to Narcan me, and like this all happened in front of my daughter. Like, not the use of the drug, but man, I could rationalize anything. I'm like, well, I didn't do it in front of her. So, because I, I had started messing around with like things that could numb you in this space of being a, a jobless or a, an operator without a, a mission. When I got my neck fused and then left my wife and then I went and did the whole, like I was gonna take over the breaching sergeant major position and I was like, oh, that, once I decided I'm not gonna be operational anymore, I told them. And that was the hardest thing for me to, to say, but there were so many other things that I knew from chronic pain, insomnia, like migraines, all these things just started really coming to the forefront after I got my neck fused and my body, like, I, I was just like, I got so many other things I gotta work on. And, but then I was like, but they, that position, like, I felt like that was the way for me to give back another five years without like being operational, but staying like involved. And then I went and helped out with the course for one day and it was around blasts. And it had been seven months since then between and I had a migraine for eight days straight like Damn. debilitating like I couldn't get out of bed um and to the point where there was nothing I just thought those were defo days that was another defo day Tylenol doesn't work you needed some sort of central nervous system suppressant like it's neuropathic like radiculopathy and nerve damage and like all these things that I was just like oh it's only a, a beer is the only thing that's gonna Take it away. And culturally, it's okay. Socially, I can do this, you know? 
And then I couldn't do it because my drinking had been exposed, you know, because it was, I was a high functioning alcoholic. I could perform. And then if I had something that day or the next day, I wouldn't drink. So I rationalized, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm abusing it from time to time. Uh, my, like I talk about using anything to mask an overwhelming emotion. And to me is abuse. If you're using it, it could be sex, it could be work, it could be alcohol, like substances, it doesn't matter. But that's another way for me to rationalize always going back to it. Once I get under control, then I'm like complacency. I'm feeling real good about myself and my sense of self, my identity was my job. It always has been because no one ever showed me as a, as a, as a man, as a, as a contributing member of society, what, what it looks like to, to, to be those things without your work being your identity. And it, through all those ups and downs, like to me, I view rock bottom as my inability to lower, or to not, my inability to lower my standards faster than my circumstances. So I'll always dig a hole deeper. And the next one I would have dug would have been my own grave, for sure. Or I've been in jail for the rest of my life. There's three options. Those two, and then pushing a shopping cart under an overpass. Because I'm cemented in PTSD, where no one understands me. And the comparing of, of trauma is the, is the problem. And it's the reason that you know, people are going and, and, and making the most selfish decision there is. And that's to take their own life. And I'm not above it. Like I, I've, at all. I've been very close to what I think is the space of, or in hopelessness. And that's the most scared I've ever been. And that's happened to me since 2016 on three different occasions where I drove myself into a hopelessness feeling and alone in a crowd and no longer can be, I, would, I knew that I, I was, I can't be in bars or this or that because it was overly stimulating and then I would just drink and then I'd become something else. And then it, like, it, it was just this, I used to joke around with mates and stuff and be like, oh, dark passenger took over, bro. That's not a fucking joke, man. It's like a serious thing where we're, we're, we compartmentalize to, to do things at such a high level over and over. But if we don't think that we have to unpackage that at some point, then it becomes a dark passenger. And then we just kind of culturally just say, ah, you know, it's just, you know, it's just someone else is driving behind the wheel right now. You know, that's not, it's not okay. Yeah. Like it's just, it's, it's um, minimizing, it's minimizing the impact that that's having. It's, it's not a split personality. It's not, it's you and you need to give it the energy if you ever want to like heal and recover because you will. And I am. And only through the spiritual awakening I had where I truly saw myself as many holes as I dug, this was the, was the most like closest to like, well, for one, death, but like I could see clearer than day through the through the haze of just I see that face, like like just passed out, like I'm gonna choke on my own damn whatever. 
just laying, just sitting there in the seat. And just like the reason I think I'm still here is because I never, even though I never really knew how to love myself, like I would never have taken my own life because I would never do that to my girls, my daughters and my kids. Like I just wouldn't do it. And because I, I love them more than I love myself. And that's a definition of codependency. And, and now only through seeing that and, and truly like not having a, a reason or, oh, I'm sorry, I was just fucked up or drunk. You know, I, daddy doesn't act that way. You know, or I'm just so mad at your mom, you know, deflecting and like, or just being honest with them about, hey, I am dealing with so much and, and, and I'm projecting it on you guys. Like they've seen all these aspects of me, but this time there was no hiding. There was no words that could explain. It was just, Roger that. And that's when I started my, my path to, to recovery and, 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 and alcohol and in AA and, and acceptance has been the biggest thing for me. It's the first step, powerless, powerlessness. I viewed that as weakness my whole life, but it's an opportunity for strength and growth. And man, just by accepting that I'm an alcoholic, oh, holy shit. It's opened up like a, a floodgate of feeling and, and connections. And, and the biggest one is a power greater than myself. Step two, believing in it. Not just believing in it, not just paying it lip service or acknowledging it that a power exists out there. For me, it's trust. And when I truly like trusted in God, I've been able to communicate with daily and, and now I can tr trust other human beings. And it's almost like being like a little child on, on like just happier than a pig and shit every day because there's so much joy that I just, it's been there. I just couldn't see it or feel it for what it was. And it's there. And that's why like I, I'm looking at this 10 months of sobriety where I'm like, man, aren't we all blessed? Yeah. And this is such a, a, a like... And, and it's never, it's not too late unless we say it is. And there's, and you're not alone. And it's okay. I'm telling you, it's okay to not be okay. Um, we can do incredible things as human beings for good and for evil. And no one thing, act, decision, like should define who you are as a person, but it does. And I let it, and it doesn't have to though. Um, what and was the last? They're not that special. What was the last I mean, straw for you? What made you quit drinking? Was it the fentanyl overdose for that, your daughter? Yeah. Yeah. That's what. That was the last thing. He cleaned mm -hmm. it up after. Yeah, because I was able to mask through. You know, I found I I never really played around with drugs and and because I couldn't in the army. It was like, oh, no, you're going to get drug tested and this and that. So I was like, and I never had a desire to. Um, with alcohol, though, it was like, if I look back at the signs, I'm like, mm, I don't think I've had a very successful drinking career, homie, like at all. And I can actually look back and there isn't a happy, a, a, a truly happy feeling that's, that's been associated with alcohol in me. Mm -hmm. So that's having a, an unhealthy relationship with a substance. And that's yeah. called, to me, an allergy. 
a uh, it's 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 not weakness. It's a, it's an alcoholism. It's it. I I, like, I measured it. I quantified it. Well, you know, my dad he drank a rack of beer, a case of beer, or whatever every night. I don't do that. I don't have to drink to wait or to function. Um, and that's how I would just you know rationalize anything. And just like uh, when I got exposed to cocaine in strip clubs in Texas, I was like, wow, this is this numbs everything. And I don't have to drink. But then it wears off, you know. So it's like I can hide and function because of I'm, I'm at such a deficit cognitively and, and emotionally. And, and, and I can't let people see that. So I just want to numb it. And I've always been looking for, for ways of numbing those things. And even the night of the Radisson, like when I told Erica, I was like, you can't help me. In my mind, I'm like, she can't help me. I was like, just let me talk to the kids and just started bawling and just told them all I loved them. And from then on, like, I was like, I'm out. And when I say that, like, that relationship I got in the extramarital affair, like, that woman was the only one that actually, like, there. A lot of people were, were like, oh, man, are you, how are you doing? Are you all right? Like, you asked me that a minute ago. And I knew what you meant by it. And I knew when I answered it, like, I am actually okay. And I can say that with confidence, whereas before, I would always just, yeah, man, I'm good. I feel fine. You know, and it's like, wait a minute. Like, is, is it lip service or is it like coming from the heart? And to me, I was just, I was looking for somebody that could like ask me a question without me prompting it. And, you know, she asked me straight up, like, hey, man, are you, how are you doing? And I'm like. Good. Woo! Saved the day. And, uh, no, she was like, oh, no, 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 like, seriously, are you, like, how are you doing? Are you okay? And I went, no. And then, and then she hugged me. And that, that was exactly what I needed in that moment in time. And that led me to an extramarital affair. That led me to, she saved me from me there. I stayed there for f almost four months, just like no mission. Maintaining relationships. And I went back home, moved out, abandoned my children, tried to pick up and start a life with this woman in a place where it was never meant. meant it wasn't a reality. It was just like some twisted um, blanket. It was a blanket that I needed, like just a wet blanket, like a uh, like alcohol was. And you know, I've I've kept that door open, even slightly. And the and the only first person that came and actually checked on me was at when I was when we were redeploying, and only because she called, Erica called my chain of command, and was like, "Kyle's not okay. Like, what are you guys fucking doing?" And were they helpful? Did they do anything? Well, that got to my team leader at the time, and he flew to, to like, see me in person and was, like, crying because he was like, I had no idea. And I'm like, yeah, man, I've been, like, waking up every night and seeing these, like, shadows through the, through the mosquito net, like, on my bed, and it just, this, like, just reliving it locking myself layers into this room or house by myself. 
and just couldn't couldn't ever um relax like not even just relax like it's a state of hypervigilance that just I stayed in for for a couple of years and like uh, different therapists I've talked to or you know like people are introducing your life at different re- at different times for different reasons but this one in particular was a psychiatrist and they said something. He said something to me in 2018, because I was asking the hard, some hard questions with my therapist. I was like, "Hey, am I doing more harm than good by by continuing to stay in this environment?" Because I was starting to see things a little bit more differently. What environment? Like the the in the, the commando environment, like state operational, beyond all of it, and. The answer was no. I, or I'm I'm doing a lot more damage than than good. But the it was said to me is like, well, it depends on what your what's your goal. Is your end goal be to be the best operator you can be? And I, I feel like that's a cop out. When you work for a command, then like your whole job is to keep us in the fight. But we're no good to you, not in the fight. So let's keep you in the fight. And and now don't get me wrong, like he's not putting words in my mouth, but yeah, you're right. And then and then on the, the conversely, where an outside psychiatrist is like telling me, Hey man, I commend you for making it this far. This is two two and a half, three years removed from the Radisson. He's like, I commend you for making it this far. But he's like, There's a fire still burning, man. Whether the embers, it's still embers or whatever, it's it's still a fire. Whether it's raging, like you need to put the fire out completely, and you're never gonna do that. We're here, and I was like, "The fuck did you say?" Like to me, I was like, "There's no way." And he's like, "He said this to me. He's like, you 'You've had Delta for the past however many years, and you need Disney, man.' You need Disney." And I said, "You can go fuck yourself, sir." <laughs> I wasn't ready to hear it, man. Yeah. I just wasn't ready to believe it or hear it. And it's so true, though. If you think about like, like, like uh, ER nurses or, or docs, where they're in a big, big cities or municipals, and they're just they're disassociation, they're they're desensitized to life and death because they're like, oh, I couldn't say this one next, you know, like. You can't stay in that environment without moments of, of periods of reprieve to reconnect with humanity. But to function in that space, like you have to be able to desensitize. Like, oh, I just picked up this dude's skull I shot in the face. Well, it's because I'm trying to put his face back together to get a, po- a photo. That's him, right? Like all these things, like they're not normal. There ain't yeah. nothing normal about anything I've done in, in my career. And... That's okay, because I have a new mission, and it, it's still to help others, but now I'm doing it having helped myself and continuing to help myself first and love myself and build my sense of self from God and from within, from an altruistic mindset, and then be selfless. So I truly, where I told you, I have, I've gained my sense of self-being and, and worth from external validation my whole life and 
that's just not the case. Not anymore. Now I'm doing it because I know there's more for me to do and it's to help others because that is the joy that, that I get as a human being, like sharpening other people's edges and skills and staying sharp and connected with them and having conversations and communicating and knowledge transfer and being present and being grateful of this wonderful country that we live in and in this long life that I have to live ahead of me with hopefully my wife and, and my, my children's children, you know, um, because that's my legacy is not what I've done. Uh, like what, what awards I've gotten or what rank I made or, or CEO job title, this, that it's, it's how we show up and raise our children and protect them and then their children's children. Like, that is our legacy. So that's how I change the generational, like, norms that I've been chained to. And I was never going to be, tr like, fully do that, continuing to operate in that space I was in. And damn sure what's going to happen in a place where you struggle to be mediocre. And you never, you never really measure up. You know, especially when you don't know how to measure up to anything. Yeah. So you just perform. And and then you never really figure out who you are. You know, I've said it a handful of times, but, um, you know, and a lot of people hate me for it in the community, which I really don't give a fuck about, but... I've said that moving farther away, every time I move farther and farther away from the special operations community, the, the happier I get, the less stress I feel. And um, it took me a long time to come to that realization though. It got so, I, re I, I realized this t fucking community is so toxic that I got to the point where I wasn't even gonna interview operators anymore. I wanted completely out. Didn't want to know anybody. Didn't want to fucking talk to anybody. I still struggle with it, you know, but... What do you think the biggest part of that is? Like... What do I think it yeah, is? Yeah, Like... I think it comes from... I think it's ingrained from training. It's... Who's the fastest runner? Who's the fastest swimmer? Who's the best shot? Who's got the most kills? Who's got the most operations? Who's got the most time in? Who's the best in the kill house? Who's the best sniper? Who's got the most jumps? Who's got the most qualifications? Who's got the most ribbons? Who's got the most ribbons with valor? Mm -hmm. Who is on the biggest op? And that's Every the, fucking thing and that happens are, in these are, communities is a competition. Yeah. It never fucking ends. And that brings jealousy. Well, if that becomes... There's, it's great to have standards and units of, to me, a metric, like to measure something mm -hmm. or else you never really know where you're at in space. Right. And, and, and your mates can never really like appreciate, or you can appreciate their, you know, where they're at like fully, but, but to dwell on it though, to, to, for mm -hmm. it to become, well, this is high school, right? Where, well, that dude's a piece of shit. Cause fucking blue, 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 you know, or their o, o course time or they're fucking, like this, this, that, and dude, it's fucking like 
toxic as hell. And this toxic yeah. masculinity of like, I have to pound my chest to prove how badass I am to other people in this space mm -hmm. is like shocking to me. It's like shocking as fuck. And I'm telling you, like, it's not deterring me from entering this space. It's only, it's, it's almost like motivating me to, to hit people with a little bit of fucking humility and vulnerability. And guess what? It doesn't mean I can't still like perform on demand. Performance on demand is what a measure of like what a great shooter and a, a good shooter is, is consistently shooting good. Like it's not like every now and again shooting this or, or like it. And that's just one, one aspect. This is, there's so much experience that we have from being at war for 20 plus years in special operations, even being smaller and smaller and more, more elite. But the, the, the more elite you get, the more like unhealthy disassociation you have with where you stand in humanity. Mm -hmm. And a part of that, like, that's not everyone. I'm not over, I don't want to overgeneralize. Some people have a very firm, grounded and, and those are usually men of faith there. But there aren't very many of them. And there's not. And openly of faith and, and, and sober. And generally they and are they, not well liked. Yeah. You're, you're, they're going to get shit on because they don't go out and, you know, big boy at night, man, big boy in the morning, you know, like, yeah. like, uh, and, and trust me, like I partied my face off most of the time everywhere I went, almost all the time. Like, because we train hard and we play hard. And it was this, the, this reprieve that I have that I, I could count on anywhere I went. We'd go all over the world, training in all these places and doing some amazing things. But for me, like it was, it would just, it was feeding into this, like this facade that was a, a it was only, it was just a matter of time for it, it, it crumbled. And then everybody just saw this scared little boy down there. Like, no. just wanting someone to tell him it's okay. It wasn't his fault. You know, and it's, uh, and then normalizing those behaviors as a parent. Like, as I've learned how to be a father and from a very young age, and it's like, well, they don't really understand how hard it could be. You know, you guys got it easy. That's the way I, I, the, I parented for a while. Anytime shit got real, like, why are they bitching? Why are they crying? I don't get this, you yeah. know, and why should they get it? And why, why do I have to make it a thing? But that's a, like, those are the circumstances of the environments that I was raised in. And, and that's where I'm, I'm challenging myself to, to not continue to adopt those and break it. And I'm working on that. I'm working and I have a, a ton of work to do because like, They're not going to always love you. They're not going to always be there. I'm a, I'm a perfect example of it. You got to show up and do the work. And they deserve every bit of you. And they need it. And they need you to protect them. And if I die tomorrow, I know that I am on the right path of, of, of mending and healing those relationships and, and prioritizing them outside of myself and God, they are it. Like, you know, in my own, like, energy output. And when, when those are 
like when those are, are healed, they're continued to be maintained. There's maintenance. There's no start or finish line with them. But I have a lot of work to do still. And I owe it all to the woman that's sitting back behind us. You know, that the fact that I'm, and she's my best friend and the, the first person I love to hate. Why do you think she gave you a third chance? I mean, last night at dinner, I'm just gonna be honest. When you guys walked in the door, I was like, oh shit, his wife has cancer. And then we sat down and we got to talking and she told me that her hair fell out because she's so fucking stressed out about what's going on at home. And I was, that's heavy. Mm -hmm. That's fucking real heavy. Why do you think she gave you a third chance? I don't know, I'm asking God every day about that. I, I don't think there's no logical reason other than God for her. Like her spiritual process is what has kept her. I think in the beginning, the first time it was, it was me, right? Like, I think she had a lot that she was still learning about her own trauma and, and the work that she needed to start doing. And she started doing it. And, and I say me, meaning like, like the appeal of being in a relationship and, and with me and like making it work no matter what, cause it's our covenant and her believing in that. But then now, like through the second, like God is the only thing that's, and I used to like make fun of her about it. Like you have your God, where the fuck are, where are they? You know, and I was just so ugly. And there's something, there's, it's powerful, man. And when that relationship can see through, you know, because I, I also like felt so alone and didn't know how to trust in others. And like, I started developing like claustrophobia and like all these different panic, panic attacks. And it's like, what the fuck is this? And at the end of the day, like bearing all of it, right? Bearing the weight of the world. Like I've been able to like give that to God and and then share to another with another human being. And because of her, she's she's shown me the example that I need to follow in my spiritual conditioning. And we got a lot of work to do as partners and, and still as individuals. But have you ever asked her why she gave you a third chance? We talked about this recently. It's the only reason is because of God. There was, there was nothing that, because before I think it was like she, she saw through all the ugliness, right? And I hadn't fully, I still had a foot in the door. And I was like, ah, oh, I don't feel like I can, because I wasn't capable of even paying bills on time and myself and running my own house. And I was like, man, I suck. Help me, you know? I want to quick, I want to escape. I want to, here, come bail me out of this, you know? And, and I don't, that, I don't have another, there's not another one of those. I've already cashed that one in. Like, so now it's like, why, why are we doing it? Like, why is she, why is she like putting up with me still? And she's my best friend. Um, and the only person that's ever, 
I've ever like tried to trust and trust and trust. Um, but that's also the person that I've, I've inflicted so much fucking pain on. And now we're just dealing with all the like residual, like triggering like things and pain cycles and, um, but if there's any, anyone else that I want to like go to the grave, like holding my hand, if they could put me in the earth, it's her. But to answer your question, I don't know other than God and that, that spiritual process and that belief and, um, the, the, like in me, you know, to when, when she can't see it, like, because I'm throwing out every bit of the, it's the ugly, the evil, the monster. When I was disconnected from humanity for, for two years of my life. Like, she's sitting right there. Do you want to ask her? Why, why have you given me a third chance? Erica. Because I've always believed in him and, um, through my own faith in God, because I believe in God and I think anything's possible. But I saw through this, the mask and the hurt and the pain and, um, I knew that my husband came back from Molly. His live flesh came back, but he actually did die in the hotel that day. And so seeing him, seeing glimpse of him throughout that, like he's still in there, like um, having that hope and um, just seeing that. been a process and still seeing that he is there you know and coming coming out you're a strong woman strong human being strongest person i've ever met in my life how are your kids i got a lot of a lot of pain a lot of things i need to like truly like put the appropriate amount of en energy towards the healing. Are they going to watch this? I hope so. You got anything to say to them? I love each and every one of you, Ethan. I've raised you since you were four and couldn't ask for a better, more capable son. And the stars, the limits, man. Like, and I, I'm I'm sorry, and you know Kyla. You guys, you just make me so proud, and I want to I want you to know that I will always be there to support you. And I know I've leaned on you guys more than you you should ever have been leaned on to to give me my sense of self love as a father, and it's. I'm working and I'm continuing to do that work to, to be the best father. And hopefully if you guys bless me as a grandfather for your, your children and Kaylee and Kennedy, you guys are okay too. No, I love all of you. And what I did doesn't define who I am and what I'm going to do is just put the, a, a, 
a fraction of, of what I owe you as a father. I love you. Thank you for letting me do that. You're welcome. They're going to love that. I hope so. That's the biggest thing for me is like, I feel like everyone's just still disappointed in me. Well, but that's the shame piece and the self forgiveness and belief. And there's probably a lot of pride in there too. Yeah. You know, I got a hell of a dad. Yeah. How many people do you think you saved in that hotel? A lot of fucking people. Even even now, like at saying that, like I I know it was exactly where I needed to be when I needed to be there and I can't, I can't even save my own marriage. I can't even like prioritize my children over everyone else. You know, I'm still struggling with it. And I just know that I'm not gonna hang my head on that. I'm going to the fact that I was there and saved the people I saved and now they're going to have children, they're going to have children because of my direct like actions and conversely, the people that I've taken off of this earth, like the intimacy of, of taking another human being's life, like that's eaten at me and I've wore that on my soul. And I'm not looking for any more fights, man. My fight is has been ongoing, and now I'm giving it the energy it needs. And it's right fucking here. It's having these hard discussions. At the end of the day, I'm gonna lay my head down tonight, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna not dwell on all the things I didn't do today. I'm gonna highlight a few of the things I did that I am proud of, and then pray that I have another. And if I wake up. Man, there's fucking joy everywhere. You just got to see it. And I got to say it so there I believe that. Because I'm telling myself these things so then I do them and truly believe in them. And as I'm doing that, as a byproduct, I know it's helping others. It's just I wish I could take back all the pain I've inflicted on the people I care about most. Because I had no idea what trauma was. Anything less than nurturing can be considered traumatic. And I say that because I guess first I'm like, fuck, I've been traumatized my whole life. But more importantly, how much trauma have I inflicted, either directly or indirectly, to the ones I've care, I care about most? And what the fuck am I going to do, do with it? Or not do about it? You can't bury it. You can. You can't avoid it. You can. I'm choosing to acknowledge the fact that I'm remorseful 
for the things I've done. I'm proud of the things I've done for good. And those are just but like chapters in a story, in a book that I'm still writing. And I have a lot of story to write. We're helping people by being this vulnerable too. Yeah. I mean, by the time this episode airs, who knows how many people are gonna watch it? A couple hundred thousand, maybe a couple million. There's gonna be a lot of people that decide to live. And that's because you're sitting here sharing your story. And that's the part you can't quantify. Like it's a service to others, brotherly love. The principles that I've been trying to put word to that I learned in the rooms of uh, through my recovery. And I'm like, and like integrity. You can't have integrity in party life. And then in others, you, like, eh, I was just drunk. Like, or, you know, like, it, it's, there's no more of that for me. It's, no, I'm going to have those things. I'm going to build those things. And it's, it's compassion. It's humility. It's vulnerability. Service. And my way of serving people of like mind and, and shared experiences or, you know, I think those are the, the easiest ones for, for, for me to connect with because of my resume. Like, oh, look at this guy. He's been through some shit. Like, or he's done some really cool things or whatever. And the fact is, I'm like, yeah, and I'm human and it's okay. I'm telling you it's okay to not be okay. But comparing traumas is, is, the, is the enemy in this space of veteran suicide and, and first responders. And, and it's like, oh, you wouldn't understand. You know, the, that side of it where you isolate yourself. And then, well, I've been through, I won't say something because they've been through more than me or some shit. I get this all the time where they're like, hey, man, I've been through some shit, but nothing like you. And I'm like, stop. Let me explain how I view trauma. And mine's mine, yours is yours. There's no better or worse. Like how, it's what we do with it and how we process it in healthy or unhealthy ways and then how that manifests in our lives that make us better or worse, not the trauma. Trauma's about that person's journey in life up to that point in, in their perspective, in that situation, in their guard, like what, what they've guarded. They pre prepared their mind, body, and spirit for, or, or they didn't. They were exposed or it could be, you know, a car accident. Like, it could be a miscarriage, a, a woman having a miscarriage. Like, th those are all equally as, as traumatic to me. Like, now, with a, the context piece of that person's life, that could be what tips them over the edge and takes their, and to take their own life. And who am I to say that their trauma, well, they, they shouldn't have did that. That's not bad enough. Well, fuck me. I'm, I'm the problem if I'm saying that. And then if I'm creating environments where that is now normalized. Well, fuck, well, like you and I go into this room, I go left, you go right. Some gnarly shit happens in the room. We leave, we get back to base or whatever. And I go, or you go, hey Kyle, I don't know how I feel about what happened in that room. And I go, motherfucker, that was a Tuesday, Sean. Get your shit back on. We're going back out. What am I doing? I'm perpetuating like an environment where don't fucking ever say anything isn't, isn't okay. 
her weird, her off. Oh, but if it's a tactical misjudgment, oh, people will fucking detonate on you. And as they should. And there's a forum for it. But, like, that process is, is like, man, what an opportunity to take as a, as a, as a leader in those spaces and be like, what do you mean? Like, what's up? Those two words could be the difference between that person drinking themselves into a fucking oblivion and blowing their brains out and, and sharing something that they may never share with anyone else. And they see you as an opportunity of, of, well, oh man, we went in the same room, but perspective is about, you're looking at it from your point of domination because we don't strong wall here, brother. It's a little tactical joke, but it's a, you know, it's an L-shaped ambush, man. And, but it's my perspective and yours and, and then our journeys in life, how we slept the night before, how exposed we are to, to what it is we're perceiving. A little compassion can go a hell of a long way. It's crazy. I mean, that's truly what leadership is, is, is compassion for others and communication. Like good leadership. I think I've talked about a lot. I have. I'm like. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? (laughs) I think we might need to schedule another episode. (laughs) I think it's a good time to end it. Yeah. No, I, I really do thank you. Thank you for letting me, you know, have this conversation with you in this forum to, to share it. I, I, I know that there's, it's helping me significantly and her and my family, the ones I care about most and then others. The people, just like I said, the story about, like, I wasn't ready to receive things. Like when, like even like Kyle Lambs told me things where, He's like, hey, man, try your best five years, four years ago. He's a spiritual mentor of mine and like a father figure. And he's like, try your best to love everyone. And I was like, Kyle, if I didn't, if I wasn't afraid of you, I'd tell you that you're full of shit. And, uh, but it's like, it, it makes so much sense what he was trying to say to me. I just wasn't ready to receive it. So now I am truly, almost to a fault, like, trying to love everyone that doesn't mean I gotta like everyone but at its core um and that's where it's where I'm like this little kid out there like truly feeling like and seeing humanity and but with a body of experience and a wealth of knowledge of of uh, uh like like things that I can use for good that were on the surface awful environments or like environments that can define you and and define you right into isolating yourself into nothing like alienation of your own your own demise yeah but it's all about iron sharpens iron and he said that to me too and metaphorically I was like you need a harder metal to sharpen a software one, so that's bullshit. But I get it now. 
this was the mind that I like the way I thought, you yeah. know, and very like I think abstractly and and I communicate that way sometimes, but sometimes it's like, well, no, analytical and, and like I guess pra not pragmatic, but yeah, like always trying to break down to the why, you know, that I talk about and. A lot of it, some of it's just blind faith. And a power greater than yourself. Because if you're the biggest thing in the world, it's a lonely island. Well, I think you're making a hell of a comeback. I'm a comeback kid. Yeah. I don't know if I like to climb out or dig in the hole, man. <laughs> or both. No, I'm not dating anymore. We Wait. seem to be going in a very positive direction now. It's 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 coming out in the light. Yeah. Like truly, it is. It's like that pressure, that monkey off my back of they need Kyle Morgan. Oh then. I'm nine hundred and sixty-five. They need me. No, it's not the fucking next man up. It's a machine. This country needs that. The world needs it. I don't. That's a good place to stop it. <laughs> right there. Almost cried saying it. It was a real honor, man. It really was. I'm, I'm fucking rooting for you. I know everybody watching is rooting for you. And, uh, you know, best of luck with your training company, Blue Bearing Solutions. Get ready. Because a lot of fucking people are going to want some training from you now. So, me included. Let's do it. So if you ever run a course out here in Tennessee, let me know. I'll take it. Absolutely. I will. No, I know. I know. You're serious, and I, I appreciate this opportunity. I do. Cool. You're, 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 doing, you're doing things that I really admire, and you're doing them in a way that's you're creating this space, which you inherently are, are saving lives and letting us and you be a part of that journey of, share, of sharing them. So keep doing it. And I will. Um, thank you. Celebrate the Black Friday sales event at Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair. Step into a new Jeep that you can count on. From the awarded new Grand Cherokee to the capable 2022 Jeep Compass, the Jeep lineup won't compromise on power, technology, or comfort. Delivering confidence and convenience for 29 years. Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair is your trusted auto partner. Visit us off Highway 30 in Blair or online at WoodhouseChryslerJeepDodge.com. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.